to Wendell's World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. Right. Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. Hey, welcome to Windows World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. I'm going to start off the podcast by speaking about college basketball. No, I'm going to stay away a little bit from the Georgetown Hoyas, a devastating loss to Villanova, but in all actuality, it was a good loss because with all of the recruits that they had at the game, my only concern, my only thought, my only prayer, my only thing of saying, please, Jesus, please give me this, is the fact that I thought Georgetown was going to lose the basketball game because of the number of players that they have available, but I said, please, Lord, just let them lose by like anywhere between 6 to 11 points. That's all I'm asking for. My biggest fear was that Villanova was going to come in and blow out Georgetown in front of Frankie Collins and all these other guys that were trying to recruit these four-star point guards and big men down low. I was afraid that we were going to get blown out by 30 points and those guys were going to be sitting in the audience at Cap One Arena talking about, so why are we thinking about coming here again? It was almost like I wanted... <laughs> I mean, never down. I'll get back to I'll get back to college basketball in the whole in just a second. But I mentioned Georgetown, and now I got to go with this. College basketball tournaments are starting this week. But let me get back to Georgetown just very quickly. When I was watching these games, when I was watching the game they had at home against Xavier and Villanova and others before, especially when it looked like your seven was going to be coming back anytime soon, and McClung was probably going to be done for the year, and the chances of making the NCAA tournament were remote, not because of any type of coaching deficiency or any talent deficiency in terms of the players that were available at the beginning of the season because of all the obstacles and all of the trials and tribulations that for that were placed upon us for the season now led us to the situation where we're in now, where, again, I don't care what kind of coach you are. I don't care who you're coaching. I don't care what type of resume that you have. I don't care if you're I don't care if you can dig up John Wooden and Red Hour back and go ahead and resuscitate Bobby Knight and Dean Smith and everybody else and put them on that sideline and give them the type of materials that Coach Ewing was going to have to work with after McClung and Dirt Seven went down and try to expect them to beat top-tier nationally ranked teams. It wasn't going to happen. So I was then starting to go into second mode, which was I was so proud of my guy, so proud of Jacob Mosley and – Terrell Allen and Javon Blair and Timothy Egoefe and Cutis Wahab and Jamarco Pickett and George Mirasan's kid. And I was just so proud of those guys. The fact that when Georgetown was going to be hosting recruits for the upcoming basketball season of 2020-2021 basketball season, my only thing was, man, during the game, during the actual playing of the game when Georgetown was either playing Villanova like it was this past weekend or the weekend before where they were playing Xavier, I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't get angry at Coach Ewing one bit. If he just turned around, I don't know where those guys exactly were sitting in the stands, but I wouldn't doubt I wouldn't fault Pat Ewing, Patrick Ewing one bit if he turned around during the game and was shouting 
at his recruit, Shelly and Frankie Collins. You see that play? No, that play right there, I'm telling you, if you come to if you come to Georgetown next season, I'm telling you, I'm giving you the keys to the car. That's you right there. Did you see that move? Did you see me yelling at uh, Terrell Allen for taking that shot? Do you see me screaming and hollering and having him being taken out of the game? No, I'm allowing him the freedom to do these things. I'm allowing Jamarco Pickett the freedom to do these things. I'm allowing the offense to flow. Do you understand what I'm saying, Frankie? If you come here next season, that could be you, my man. This could be you, Kobe Clark. Come on down. Join the squad next season. This could be you. Oh, you see that? Jamarco made another bad shot. I'm not going to pull him. I'm not going to yell at him. I'm going to give him the freedom to do and play his game, just like I'm going to give you the freedom to play your game right off the bat. Frankie, if you come on down and be our point guard next season, I'm guaranteeing you, man, you're getting 30 minutes a game. I'm guaranteeing you. You, Dante Harris, I'm telling you, please, for Jesus' sake, for God's sakes, my man, come on down. Huh? What the score? Well, that Villanova's up by 16, huh? Oh, shit. Timeout, timeout. That's, if, if Ewing was coaching the recruits from the stands about in this situation, I'm telling you, you see how, you see how Javon Blair stepped back and shot that three under pressure? I'm going to let you do the same thing. I'm not going to shackle you. I'm not going to try to tamp you down on what you can do on the offensive side. Come on down to Georgetown, my man. Put on that uniform. Let me teach you. Let me show you. Let me coach you. Let me get you ready for the next level. I coached. I taught. I learned under Pat Riley and the Van Gundys and Steve Clifford and John Thompson and Hall of Famers. I can do this. Come on down. You don't need to go anywhere else. What happened? Oh, I should be paying attention to the game? I fucked them. Please, man. Come on, too. Come on, man. Come on down to the school, man. I only got three more years left on my contract. I got to start winning soon, big bubba. So I would not doubt Patrick Ewing this weekend if he was just shouting those type of directions, shouting those type of pleas and urgencies to the recruits that he had in the stands on um, Saturday, but very proud. Again, the officiating was bullshit. That was not a goaltending call. In fact, that was even a ticky-tack foul. I mean, making that type of call at that juncture of the game. But uh, again, for those who want to sit there and talk about how bad the refereeing is in the NBA, watch a college basketball game. Watch a Big East basketball game. And then if you can imagine... Go ahead and watch like a mid-major basketball game or even a lower division one basketball game. You're going to be talking about some bad officiating. If you ever sit up there and start yelling and screaming at Leon Wood and the rest of those NBA officials about bad calls, go watch a Georgetown basketball game in the Big East and watch those guys work and operate and make those calls. You'll be scratching your head saying, eh, it could be worse. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, starting off the program by talking about what's going down in college basketball, mainly my Georgetown Hoyas. Okay, since I got that out of the way, the college basketball tournament start this week. It's been an off year, I think, for college basketball. It hasn't been the year of the Zion. It hasn't been the year of the dominant team. It hasn't been the year of an undefeated team. It hasn't been the year of one of the historically great college basketball programs running roughshod. We haven't had any type of really cool, interesting storyline that could take our attention away from college football or maybe the NFL playoffs or the NBA. There hasn't been really that this season for college basketball. The parody might work in the NFL, but it does not work in other sports, especially college basketball. When you're speaking about the number of teams that have been ranked number one this season through 18 weeks or 19 weeks, you've got eight teams, Michigan State, Kentucky, Duke twice, Louisville, 
Kansas, Gonzaga, Baylor, and then finally Kansas again. You're talking about eight teams over 19 weeks, which had been number one in the country. Michigan State was the preseason number one in the country. They had the player of the year coming back in Cassius Winston Sr. They started off 5-3, and three, losing to Kentucky and Duke, which is like, okay, man, no problem. You lose to those two teams on a neutral floor. Hey, okay, we get it. No big deal. It's a long season, but... Then they lost at home to Virginia Tech. And it's like, okay, what the fuck's going on here? Then they won eight games in a row and were ranked number eight in the country. And you were like, okay, now Tom Izzo and those guys have got everything back together. Then they went through another 10-game stretch where they were four and six. Three of the losses were in a row to Wisconsin, Penn State, and Michigan. And now they've closed out the season pretty strong. They handled Maryland on the road last week was with a big game for them. Then they went ahead and they beat Ohio State. So going into the tournament, going into the regular um, uh, conference tournament and NCAA tournament, Michigan State seems to be getting the groove correctly, finding the groove at the right time. Tom Izzo, as you know, is always going to have those guys ready to play by the time the tournament starts. So we'll see what happens. We'll see, are we going to get the good Michigan State, the one that, beat uh, Maryland on the road, the one that's finishing up strong, or are we going to be getting the Michigan State in the middle of the season where they lost to Wisconsin, Penn State, and Michigan? You never know in a one-and-out tournament like it is in the NCAAs. Kentucky 24-6, and 14-3 in league play, or I should say 25-6. and six. Lost a 17-point lead against uh, Tennessee to lose 81-73 last Tuesday. They had a you know, they had a good lead going in, but, you know, they started to take the foot off the pedal a little bit. Tennessee started hitting shots, and before you knew it, Tennessee won the basketball game. They were down by, what, 17 in the second half against Florida until they choked. Speaking of the game, speaking of the Florida Gators, they choked without Ashton Higgins, the starting point guard for Kentucky. The Wildcats came back and won that game. So now you're talking about the situation where Kentucky's won 13 of their last 14 games. And before the loss against Tennessee, they had won eight in a row. The only thing that I'm talking about with Kentucky, especially when, again, the Calipari type of coaching and to go with a lot of young players, mainly freshmen, mainly one and duns, mainly five-star recruits who have their eye on the NBA and also an eye on pleasing Coach Cal and making it to the tournament and winning the tournament and all those things. You're really, when you're speaking about Kentucky, Going into the tournament, and regardless of what they do in the Southeastern Conference tournament this week, this upcoming week, they're still going to be somewhere around the number three seed. Possibly if they win and some things break their way, they could slide into a number two seed. But I'm looking at Kentucky somewhere as a number three seed. But you're you're talking about a Kentucky Wildcat team. They haven't played a top ten ranked team in the country since December 28th, where they beat Louisville in overtime at home. Louisville was ranked number three at the time. So you're speaking about a Kentucky team, a, a young team. And even though, yeah, it's not as young as maybe as some of the other Kentucky teams under Calipari in the last few years. I mean, E.J. Montgomery and Ashton Hagens and Emmanuel Quigley, those guys are, are, are not freshmen. I guess in Kentucky's philosophy and way of living, I mean, they're almost grizzled veterans as being sophomores. But the highest team they've played since their victory over Louisville on December 28th, they beat Auburn, who at the time was ranked 15th, and they played them another time at loss when they were ranked 17th. So we're speaking about a Kentucky team here who, again, when they get into the tournament, when a lot of things are going to be determined. And when we're speaking about a young team like this, the first time going around like the Wildcats are going to be, whether depending on such guys as Keon Brooks and, and some other high-quality 
uh, freshman going in. It's going to be interesting, Ty- Tyrese Maxey, to name another one. It's going to be interesting to see how well they play the first time around, the first time going through things, if they can learn anything from going through the Southeastern Conference, whether they win the championship or win it or, or lose in the semifinals, going into the NCAA tournament, I wonder what their mindset is going to be. Coach Cal usually has those guys on the on the right track, but uh, we'll see what happens moving forward. But like I mentioned before, man, it has just been a strange, strange year. I mean, many people thought North Carolina was going to be one of these teams were going, that were going to be one of the elite teams in the country, and little did we know how... I wouldn't use the word overrated. Cole Anthony wasn't overrated. But without question, even without the injuries that Anthony suffered his first and only season with the uh, Tar Heels, it was kind of a shocking disappointment if you're a Tar Heel fan how he didn't have the impact that many people thought that he would have when he announced that he was going to North Carolina over the qualified, fantastic, wonderful program of Georgetown University, that he decided that he was going to go ahead and uh, don the Carolina blue. I mean, this is a North Carolina team now that's, what, 11 and 19, something like that? I mean, just a really big surprise that Carolina would fall off like they did. Duke not having the talent that they had last year of Zion Williamson and R.J. Barrett and and uh, Cam Reddish and those guys. I mean, these guys, Vernon Carey has been great, and Trey Jones was the – ACC player of the year, but they don't have that star quality. They don't have that star player. I get you to say possibly if they needed to get something, their best option would be Vernon Carey, but he's not that type of transitional. He's not that type of transcendent. He's not the player of the year type of player that uh, that Zion Williamson was, Williamson was last uh, season for Duke. So right now, Duke has a bunch of young, really good guys on their basketball team, but they're not, they don't stand out. The five-star freshmen that they got this season to play for them, Wendell Moore and Matthew Hurt and such. They're not the superstar lottery pick type selections that that Duke normally gets when you're speaking all the way back to Justice Winslow and Jamil Okafer and even before that with Luau Dang and Jason Williams, even though Williams played two seasons at, uh, at Duke along with Mike Dunleavy Jr. who played three seasons, I believe, when they won themselves the championship. But Duke doesn't have that type of high quality, pro-prospect type of talent on their team this season. They're still good. They're still one of the favorites to win the ACC tournament, of course, along with Florida State. But Duke is not the Duke that we all know and love. But still, with the talent that they had and the expectations that were put upon them, Coach, of course, Coach K is going to get the most out of the team. And, of course, I wouldn't be doubting Duke as the tournament rolls around in a few weeks. The three of the top six teams in the country, if you think about it, when I'm when I'm discussing how this year in college basketball, there really hasn't been that dominant, dominant team. There hasn't been that historical college basketball power that has moved its way to the top. You can say Kansas. You can say Kansas. But Kansas has been good. They're the best team in the country. But would you call them the overwhelming favorites to win the NCAA tournament? I wouldn't. I really wouldn't. And, and the only reason why they're favored as well as they are to win the championship. If you take a look at some of these teams, three of the top six teams in the country are from mid-major non-power five conferences. Gonzaga is ranked number two in the country. Dayton is ranked number three in the country. San Diego State is ranked number six in the country. You have non-traditional powers such as Baylor and Florida State and Seton Hall and BYU and Creighton who have cracked the top 15. So 
When you don't line yourself up or when you don't know that much about these teams that I just mentioned, like Dayton and San Diego State and Creighton and Baylor and BYU, teams that have not been, we know about Gonzaga. We know, especially over the past five years, that Gonzaga, along with Villanova, have been has been that non-Duke, Kentucky, Kansas type of team that have fortified themselves as one of the elite college basketball programs in the country. But still, other than that, I mean, Gonzaga has been the best team in the west, west of the Mississippi for the last 10 years, 15 years, and a mark few. But So you know that they're going to be good. You know, especially, again, over the past couple of seasons, even though they haven't been getting the five-star recruits like Kentucky or Duke or USC or any of these other schools that they've been getting, they haven't been getting that five-star one-and-done gym that still the pipeline, the program that Mark Few has built, you know that Gonzaga, especially again in the conference that they play in also, you know they're going to be right there, you know that they're going to be ready maybe if this was a situation where like Dayton or San Diego State where they don't have that resume, they don't have that background, they don't have that experience they don't have the examples of putting the fears to rest of whether they're ready to step up in competition and compete against the best of the best this season in the tournament Gonzaga has that quality resume has that quality program that has done it year in and year out for that team to have the benefit of the doubt after running roughshod through the Western, uh, the, the WCC, not worrying about, well, you know, what type of competition are they playing? I mean, playing such teams as Santa Clara and St. Mary's and San Francisco and Loyola Marymount and Pepperdine. I mean, really, I mean, how are they going to fare when they get to play the big boys, the blue bloods in the tournament? Well, Gonzaga, beats up and plays those teams in the WCC every year. They do just fine when they get to the tournament also. And it doesn't hurt that because they play in such a conference to where they're so much better than the next or the second best team in that conference. Sorry, Randy Bennett, the St. Mary's. But um, Gonzaga can go out in their preseason and they can schedule the tough games. They can schedule the top 10 and the top five teams in the country and play them on a neutral side and not worry about it because they know that they're going to win their conference. They know they're going to win their tournament, which is going to get them an automatic bid in the NCAA tournament. And that makes them good to go, ready to flow and all those good things. So they can go ahead and test themselves, learn from their mistakes, learn from the competition that they play against in the preseason, sharpen the skills, sharpen their team philosophy, sharpen the chemistry that they have for each other, the passion that they play for each other. And by the time the tournament rolls around, by the time this time of the year comes about, the Gonzaga, the Gonzaga Zags, are good to go. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us, listening to us on this wonderful, fabulous podcast. So speaking about what's going down with the college basketball scene this season, as I mentioned before, the tournaments, the conference tournaments are going to be starting this week. My question is, okay, we mentioned Florida State, we mentioned Baylor, we mentioned Creighton, we mentioned BYU, we mentioned San Diego State, we mentioned all these teams who are non-traditional powers. How good is Dayton? Dayton is 29-2, they're undefeated in conference play, they play in the Atlantic 10, yeah, you know, average type of mid-major conference that they play in, but their only losses were in overtime on a neutral floor to Kansas out there in Maui, one of the better games of the season, which I saw that they lost to Colorado again in overtime. So you sit there and you say, well, you know, have they really been tested? Yeah, they've been tested. They took Kansas to the overtime. Colorado's going to be a tournament team, hopefully. But then again, it's like they played, again, 
<clears throat> they played Kansas in Maui in a tournament that took place in, on during the Thanksgiving break. That was many moons and many months and many games ago. How is how are they going to respond? How are they going to get back into the groove? And the fact they really haven't been tested or they really haven't played anybody since that uh, since that Thanksgiving weekend in Maui against Kansas. What are they going to do moving forward? How really good are they? Are they going to be the St. Joe's team that went undefeated uh, years ago with Phil Martelli, at the, Phil Martelli at the coach, and they lost in the final eight to Kansas? Are they going to? What type of team are we looking at here? Are they really going to be Cinderella? Can you really call a team number two in the country finishing with a record of twenty nine to two, going on on a what twenty game winning streak or so? Not some nonsense like that. Can you really say that that is a Cinderella story? That's a Cinderella team? This isn't Loyola of Chicago a few years ago. This wasn't George Mason a few years ago. This isn't one of these, this isn't a Steph Curry-led Davison team uh, when he made it to the final eight where they lost to Kansas. Or after, who did they lose to? After they lost to somebody in the Elite Eight. So how can you really say that this Creighton team is a Cinderella squad for those who want to say that? I don't know. I have no idea. I'll be quite honest with you. I probably saw I probably saw Dayton play maybe a game and a half, I think. Because again, I just really wasn't in tune to college basketball because I was mainly focusing on my Georgetown Hoyers. So outside of maybe the other call me call me a power traditional snob. But I was concentrating more on the teams that Georgetown was competing against for me to be taking a look about what's going down in the Atlantic Ten. But you take a look at Dayton. They had the best player pro prospect in the country, Aubrey Topin, averaging 20.7 rebounds per game. How good is the team? I'm interested to find out because right now my knowledge on Dayton is very, very, very bare. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So doggone glad that you could be with us listening to this podcast. How good is San Diego State? I mean, this isn't your Steve Fisher San Diego State team. Lost at the buzzer in the conference championship to Utah State. They've lost twice in their final six games of the season. Okay, all right. And people are going to point to say, well, before you start saying fluke, because they play in the Mountain West, and they play such teams as Air Force and UNLV and New Mexico and all these other squads that aren't going to be going anywhere in any type of tournament. Before you get on San Diego State for padding their resume and padding their record with the wins against those guys, remember, they have quality wins against Iowa and Creighton. And BYU, and you say, okay, that's cool, but then again, you think and you say to yourself, okay, they played Iowa and Creighton in the Las Vegas Invitational back in late November. In Iowa, against BYU, they played those guys on the road, beat them the second game of the season. That was November 9th. How are you doing moving forward? When it comes to college basketball, man, don't talk to me about, or if you're talking, or you're trying to surmise how good a team is in, in any sport, don't talk to me about what they did back in September or what they did three or four months ago. Who cares what they did three or four months ago? Each team is a lot different three or four months ago than they are right now. So Iowa is a much better team now than they were back in November. BYU is a much better team than when they played San Diego State back in the second game of the year. Creighton playing right now is one of the better teams. Forget that blowout loss to St. John's. Creighton right now playing some of the best basketball in the country. So how much stock, how much weight do you want to put on San Diego State blowing them out by 31 points, especially, again, when you're getting into a tournament where this isn't the best of three, this isn't the best of five, this is the best of one. 
So it's about what team is playing the best at this present time. And right now, when you take a look at San Diego State, you take a look at, at them losing at home to UNLV. Then they come back and they lose in their conference championship to Utah State. I'm not saying they're going to go out and lose in the first round, but my stock or my thoughts and feelings or my impression is that Kentucky or someone like a Duke or someone of that ilk who has a coach and a program and players who have been there before, I think they have a better chance of advancing. I think they have a better chance of making it to the Elite Eight. I think they have a better chance of going to the Final Four and say someone like a San Diego State whose players, coaches, programs, fans, city, everything is completely new to everything to the success of what San Diego State is doing. It's almost like a journey. You gotta, when you're building a program, and you want to sustain a program. These are some of the things you got to go through right now. I don't think San Diego State, I don't think Dayton, I don't think BYU or any of these teams really have the infrastructure, really have the program rolling to the point to where it's at the level of a Gonzaga. When we're speaking about a mid-major who can consistently compete at a high level and make it to Sweet 16 on a consistent basis or have those type of expectations. That hasn't been San Diego State's program forever. And this is a squad that had that, that had uh, Kawhi Leonard there. It's still a program to where it still relies on transfers, not five-star recruits. Steve Fisher made a killing in terms of building and rebuilding the San Diego State program by getting transfers. He wasn't out there getting five-star recruits or four-star recruits on the whole on the whole to go to the school, something that Andy Enfield is doing down at USC right now. He's got the number one player, Evan Mosley, uh, Mobley, coming into his program next season. He has a couple of other really good prospects coming into his program. San Diego State cannot recruit that way. San Diego State can't build their program that way. There's not enough talent in the San Diego area to where after – UCLA or Arizona or Arizona State or if they're good enough, a Duke or a Kansas or a goddamn right Georgetown comes in and picks those guys that there's enough five-star recruits after the Blue Bloods get done picking the cream of the crop. If I could use that cliche for the San Diego State Aztecs to take the other four-star recruits that the, that the big boys didn't want. San Diego State doesn't have that type of basketball program, doesn't have that structure, doesn't have that gravitas to do such a thing. So they have to go in many different ways, thinking outside the box. The same thing with Gonzaga. Gonzaga built their program by going across the seas and going over to other countries. They're bringing folks and bringing players and prospects from Japan and France and Germany and Austria and other countries in Europe that helped them build the program. So... Is that supposed to be, is that going to be a formula, a mixture this season with San Diego State and the consistency that they had this season in terms of winning? Is that going to be enough to get them to the final eight, to the Sweet 16, to the Final Four, even to possibly win the national championship? I don't think so, but I tell you one thing, this is a great year to do it when you don't have that, once again, you don't have that super team coming from that super conference with those other really good super basketball teams from that conference. So who knows going forward? But you know what? That one makes the tournament so great. And really, I know people want to sit there and talk about, oh, yeah, you know, Cinderella this and Cinderella that. And I'm one of these guys who say, you know, enough of that bullshit. I don't, I don't really give a damn about that. These conference weeks, the conference basketball tournament, 
I think I've given you my thoughts and opinions about what I think about these uh, conference tournaments. And if I haven't, let me tell you my thoughts and feelings about them. Could you wonder? Sure, sure. Let me tell you. I just feel that it's a joke and it's a scam in terms of the winner of the tournament gets an automatic bid to the NCAA tournament. Now, for the ACC and for the Big East and for the SEC and for the Pac-12 and the Big Ten and the Big 12, that's really doesn't make any big difference. Whoever wins a regular season comes in second, comes in third, comes in fourth, comes in fifth, and these power conferences, they're going to be getting into the tournament. So the so the conference tournament really means nothing. Every blue moon, you might have a squad from the ACC or a squad from the Big East or a squad from the Pac-12 who might not have been able to qualify for the tournament when their tournament and get in and everybody says, yay, that's what makes playing in the conference tournament so wonderful and so exciting and must-see TV. It's because you never know when Cinderella's going to go ahead and win the championship. That's bullshit in terms of, yeah, that might be great for the Pac-12 or for these Power 5 conferences where you have Duke, where you have Florida State, where you have Michigan State, where you have Villanova, where you have Seton Hall and Creighton, where you have Arizona, where you have... Baylor, where you have Kansas, where you have these schools that are like, you know, we don't give a fuck. We're going to be getting in Kentucky. We don't care. We're going to be getting in the tournament anyway. So whether we lose in the first round of our conference tournament or win the damn thing, it don't make no much difference. You think if Kansas State loses in the first round of the tournament, that somehow, some way, they're going to lose their number one spot? Of course not. The same thing with Gonzaga. You think if Gonzaga loses in the tournament, that all of a sudden they're not going to have their number one spot? Of course not. My always argument is, is that because of the NCAA's greed, I don't know if it's because of them being influenced by the by television, by ESPN or whatever, but somehow, some way, for the lower tier conferences, they have to seem to make these tournaments watchable. That they have to have something, they have to have a carrot for them to dangle to have you be interested in the SWAC Conference Championships or the Mountain West Conference Championships or the, I don't know, or the Ohio Valley Conference Championships, all these, the Patriot League Championships, all these other lower tier conferences that these teams are coming from. So it's like, wow, isn't it great when you have a team, say for instance, in the Ohio Valley or the Missouri Valley Conference that wins their conference and then they lose the championship game of their conference tournament on another team's home floor to a squad by one point in double overtime and because of that despite the body of work that they've done through 30 31 32 games it's all null and void because they lose one game in their conference tournament that's bullshit it should be of course always when you're speaking about the lower tier conferences if you want to go ahead and have the conference tournament champion get an automatic birth to the ncaa tournament fine problem no dandy but i will say this also, an automatic bid should go to the team that wins the regular season. Because what you're doing in terms of the lower tier conferences, in fact, is that you are nullifying the importance of the regular season by saying, who cares where you finish in the conference? All you need to do is win your conference tournament. All you need to do is get hot for three days or four days and win three or four games and you get yourself an NCAA tournament bid. And what you did through four or five months of the season means absolutely nothing from a positive standpoint or from a negative standpoint. Again, if you're a team like Vermont or if you're a team like Lehigh or you're one of these low mid-major squads, who cares if you're doing, if you have a great regular season record from November, December, January, February, these four months, who cares? 
Who really cares what you do in terms of who you beat, in terms of who you play, in terms of what your record is, in terms of your strength of schedule, in terms of your RPI, your quad one victories? Who cares about any of that nonsense? Because you know if you don't win your tournament, you're going to be passed by from a school in the Big Ten or a school in the Big 12 or a school in the Big East that's four games under 500 and with a 17-13 record who are going to be placed above you in terms of making the NCAA tournament. So if you're coming from a mid-major conference, if you're coming from a low-tier conference, who cares what you do in the preseason? Who cares what you do during conference play? All of that stuff is absolutely meaningless. And I thought one of the reasons why the NCAA was so doggone hell-bent about not having a playoff, a college football playoff, is because they were always touting and they were always talking about and jumping up and down and, and telling everybody who could be told that what makes college football so great is the fact that every single game that they play counts. The game number two is just as important as the game number seven and game number nine because there's only a few spots available for these teams to buy for the college football championship. So really, the college football season, especially as we go down the stretch, as we go down the wire in the regular season, you can almost say that those are de facto playoff games because it means so much because like the NBA, unlike the NBA and unlike Major League Baseball and unlike hockey and the NFL, the most important onus is placed on college football when it comes to the importance of the regular season, right? Well, they flipped the script 180 when it comes to their philosophy and their discussion about college basketball. In college football, every single game counts. In college basketball, if you're a low-tier mid-middle school, none of these, none of the regular season games counts. The only games that count are the one in the tournaments. And I don't give a damn. You could be Chicago State and go one for 25. Guess what? If they win the, the Western Athletic Conference Championship, they're in. What are the chances of that? Zero. But at least they're in. At least they'll get a shot at the playing game. So they can beat whoever they try to beat. Maybe a team from the MEAC or from the SWAC. They get in and then they get their asses handed to them by Kansas. But yet and still. So I that's one of the things that really tightens my jaws, if I could use that term, when it comes to these conference championships. And look, this is just championship week for college basketball this upcoming week where ESPN is going to be showing a zillion games and there's going to be storylines that gives them something to talk about. The championship week for college basketball is just the same for, it's just another word for bowl week. It's the, it's college basketball, basketball's version of bowl week for college football. You know how we have the bowl, it's bowl week, you know, sponsored by this, that, and the other. Welcome to bowl week, where you get to watch the toilet bowl, and you get to watch the sponsor, 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 body key, dining key, china key, mighty dee, dally, dally dee, you know, Las Vegas bowl, or some bullshit like that. You know, it's all about, oh, this, that, and the other. It's nothing more than filler programming. It's nothing more for the alumni at the schools. It's nothing more than for the gamblers to put their bets in place their wages on something. That's what college basketball, that's what these tournaments are for. That's what the conference tournaments are for. And that's the reason why they have the automatic bid if you win your conference championship. The tournament, you can go ahead and get yourself into the NCAA tournament because it makes it more enticing for someone who's a gambler or someone who's an alumni of the school or just someone who 
just jonesing for some sports to go ahead and take a look and watch something else. I'll tell you one thing. I'll be watching a few games because they're on all day. And I'll be at I'll be at work and I've got my phone. So I'll be watching a little Big East Conference basketball. And I'll be watching Georgetown play on Wednesday as they play against St. John's. And I'll be seeing what's going on with Duke and going on with the ACC tournament and the Big Ten tournament and the Pac-12 tournament. I'll be, I'll be watching some of those games. But don't expect me to be sitting there talking about I got the WCC basketball game on Gonzaga versus um San Diego. No, they're, they're playing um they're playing San Francisco right now. And I'm gonna switch this game over as soon as I go to break. I'm gonna switch this game over because I think the Denver Nuggets are playing on NBA TV. So I'm not gonna be wasting my time watching any college basketball conference championship tournaments. I won't be doing that for that long in terms of sitting down watching all of them. I'll watch a few just because, you know, hey, it's interesting. Goal in life was always to play college basketballs. I mean, from a standpoint of that, I'll watch, but I still think it's bogus. I still think it's ridiculous in terms of what they do about trying to decide who makes the tournament and who not does not make the tournament. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell's Wendell's Wallace, Wendell's Wallace's, <laughs> I like that, Gonzaga, right, number two, yeah, best college basketball program right now, west of the Mississippi for the last 15 years, 29-2, and two. Villanova's 24-7 and seven this season, went 13-5 in the Big East, shared the league title with Seton Hall and Creighton, Creighton's playing some really good basketball, Seton Hall's playing some really good basketball now that Miles Powell is back and doing his thing. Marquette, as long as you got Marcus Howard putting up points, he's a guy that could go for 35 or 40, so that'll be interesting to watch. Uh, Gonzaga, 9-2 in quadrant, 1-2 opportunities with zero losses outside of the first quadrant. All right. I mean, Gonzaga's legit. I think Mark Few's a fantastic coach. I would be, It would be interesting, and I know that he'll never do it, but I think Mark Few would, be, would make a really interesting NBA coach. If I'm one of these teams, I at least kick the tires, see if he has any interest. And I'm also curious to see why Few has never really participated as a coach or never got asked to uh, coach any of the U.S. Olympic teams, whether why he hadn't been in that pipeline. I know that when Coach K was coaching our USA men's basketball team that, you know, you had guys like Jim Beheim and had to take a couple of others from the pros. So, you know, you have to have some balance. But as far as being an assistant coach is concerned, I think the guy who should be getting a shot, not the head coach of the USA basketball team, but at least sitting on that bench or has some type of participation with that team should be Mark Few. I think he's been a great, I think he's done a great job. And he was a sleeper coach when he got hired. Dan Monson was the guy that really started that program rolling back in the day for Gonzaga, but you know what? He wanted to get more money and have a shot to win, so he thought that going to Minnesota was the way to go, and he quickly found out that, oh, shit, no, not really. Not really, just because you're at a big-time school and a big-time conference does not mean that you have a better opportunity to recruit better players and have a better opportunity to win basketball games. And just because you make more money, that's the only advantageous thing that he had going for him in choosing to leave Gonzaga at the time. And Gonzaga at the time was not known as the program that they are now. They were still that they were still facing that, well, are they really good enough? Is Gonzaga really that team that can, can that can consistently do that? This is before Adam Morrison. This is when we're talking about the Dan Dickow era. Um, well, I think that uh, I think Dan Dickow and those guys a few coached those guys. But before that, but Monson was the one who really set down the foundation. 
and Feud took it to a whole new another level. And the last time I checked, man, Monson bounced from Minnesota, and I think he was at Long Beach State for a little bit, and I don't even know if he's coaching right now or what he's doing. But, uh, yeah, the lesson of that story is the grass ain't always greener on the other side. So I think maybe Few, who's very comfortable in Spokane, he's got his kids, he's got his wife, he's got his family, he's got his community, he's got his routine down up there to where he loves it. I don't know. I don't know if money can pry him away from leaving the situation that he's in right now. I mean, really, if you take a really think about it, let's say I'm just throwing out an arbitrary number. Let's just say, for instance, Mark Few makes $3 million in Spokane, Washington. Would it be worth him to coach in the state of California for six and a half and deal with everything that comes Southern California? Would I mean, Mickey, Mick Cronin is already the coach at UCLA, but I don't know. Let's say, for instance, that Andy Enfield in a couple of years blows up and they decide to move on and go in a different direction. And they go, hey, Mark Few, are you interested? I mean, we got USC, this, that, and the other, this, that, and the other, LA, da, 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 da. Would it really mean the 50, 75% increase in pay and you're making millions of dollars already living in Spokane, Washington with the lure of living in LA, dealing with the traffic, dealing with the smog, dealing with the people, dealing with the police. Oh, I'm sorry, sorry. Mark Few was in black, sorry. So scratch that, dealing with the police. Um, but everything that goes with living in LA, would that be worth it for him to leave? That's something only that he can ask, his wife can answer, and his family could answer. So who knows? But as of right now, if I'm Mark Few, I don't go anywhere. Especially, again, if he's comfortable, I wouldn't go anywhere. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting, this March Madness coming up. Again, not a huge fan of the conference tournaments in terms of what the winner receives, the trophy that they receive, the real trophy that they receive, which is an automatic berth in the NCAA tournament. But on a smaller level, from the side view, yeah, when it comes to some of the power conferences this week, I'll go ahead and watch. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us talking about what's going down in the world of sports, mainly this week, the college basketball conference tournaments are upon us. Changed over to the NBA game on NBA TV. You got playing over there. Oh, it's halftime. No wonder. No wonder there was a plethora of commercials, but I was thinking again, they're at the 
San Francisco Gonzaga game, which is the semifinals of the WCC tournament, a conference tournament in which Gonzaga is going to win pretty handily, I would think. So I'm taking a look at the teams right now who have already received automatic bids for the tournament. We've got Utah State from the Mountain West, of course, the three-pointer beating San Diego State 59-56. Belmont from the Ohio Valley. Winthrop from the Big South. Bradley from the Missouri Valley. Liberty from the Atlantic Sun. I wonder if Jerry Falwell had anything to do with that, you know. I prayed to Jesus and I said, Jesus, please, let Liberty University get to the NCAA basketball tournament. I promise you, I swear to goodness, and you know I don't swear to your Lord, but Lord, I need your help right now. Because you go ahead and you let Liberty University, my Liberty University, go into the NCAA where I can receive some of that heavenly money. I promise you, I promise you, I tell you one thing. I let some of them Negroes come back in here and they don't have to be playing any sports. They don't have to be playing basketball. They don't have to be playing football. They don't have to be playing any of them sports. I'm telling you, Lord, please, Lord, just let me get into the NCAA tournament. And I promise you, I let some of them Negroes into my room. I let some of them Negroes into my university. And they can go ahead and they can maybe even, they can even maybe have some relations with some of the white women that we have here on this campus. Oh, look at me painting Jerry Falwell being racist. I don't know the man. That's being, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I just thought it was something I needed to get off my chest. Wasn't that a funny joke? <laughs> Wendell's World in Sports, the podcast. Wendell Wallace with you. So doggone glad that I can be with you. So I'm telling you again, I'm taking a look at some of these meaningless conference tournaments because remember when I told you before the break that I was going to spend a little bit of time taking a look at some of the conference tournaments and yeah, I'm a slave to the the Power Five conferences. So yeah, what intrigues me if I'm going to be watching these tournaments is what's happening in the ACC and what's happening in the SEC and what's happening in the Big East and what's happening in the Big 12 and the Big 10 and the Pac-12. And I'm going to be watching some of those games. I'm going to be following some of those games. It's tournament time, baby. I'm not one of these guys who follow, who do a bracket. I'm not, I don't do brackets. For those who do brackets, want to put your money down, do that type of thing. Hey man, more power to you. You're not, I'm just saying, that's just not me. That is not me. I got some better things to do with my money than gamble it on brackets for the NCAA tournament, especially when I don't know all of the teams and really don't have the inclination, the time, the patience, or the drive, passion, or hunger to go ahead and find out exactly Utah State squad and Belmont squad and Winthrop squad and Liberty squad. Liberty squad, Liberty squad. Liberty, 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 Liberty. I don't have the nerve. I don't have the time to be doing all that kind of stuff in terms of learning all about their team so I can make the best educated guess I can. And even when you do, man, the NCAA tournament is so topsy-turvy that you ain't going to win no how, no way. But I'm taking a look at, like, the Western Conference, the Western Athletic Conference. New Mexico State is the best team in that conference. You know, they've won their third consecutive regular season WAC title. They are currently riding a 19-game winning streak at the second-longest active run in the nation and the third longest in the history of the program. And the words of Derek Coleman will whoop the damn do if they don't win the conference tournament. But I'm taking a look at this. New Mexico State is the best team in that conference, right? Right? As far as the college basketball power power rankings, they're ranked number 91. And if you take a look at some of the other teams in that conference, as I mentioned before, Chicago, I think it's Chicago State, they're dead last. 
in terms of the college basketball rankings is concerned, they're 353rd. California State Bakerfield is 242. Utah Valley State is 254. Grand Canyon, Dan Marley is still the coach there, by the way. His uh, team, his squad is ranked number 240. You see, you see uh, University of Missouri, Kansas City is number 218. Man, I'm not, why in the world would I waste my time? Why would I waste my energy? Why would I place my money down on something like that? What would make me, what would, even someone like me who has no type of social life whatsoever, it's not borderline pathetic. It is pathetic in terms of you take a look at my social life. What would entice me to go ahead and say, hmm, I definitely want to see the championship game of this tournament. The same thing with the Southwestern Athletic Conference, the SWAC. Perry View is the best team in that conference, right? Out of the 353 Division I college basketball teams, in terms of the power ranking is concerned, they're ranked 237th. And that's the best team in the conference. You got Mississippi Valley State at 352. What in the world? What in the OB? What in the Jerry Rice and the Willie Totten is going on here with Mississippi Valley State having a power ranking of 352 out of 353. Arkansas Pine Bluff at 347. Alabama A&M is 347. Yeah, I don't know, the 346. Alcorn State at 324. Florida A&M at 327. And you have other meaningless conference tournaments such as American East Conference, which has Vermont, Stony Brook, New Hampshire, Hartford, UMBC, now I know UMBC has made some fame by going ahead and being the only 16th seed that beat the number one seed in Virginia a couple of years ago, but they played their next game and got smashed, a big fucking deal. The Big West Conference, you have UC Irvine, UC Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara, there used to be a coach, when UNLV was in that conference back when Tark was doing his thing back in the late 80s, I believe early 90s, UM, UCSB was actually a pretty good basketball program. And they, they had a coach, Jerry Prim, who lived on a, who lived on a, like a sailboat or something like that. He had this boat, you know, he lived right there in the water. So I can't blame him for that. But yeah, UCSB used to be a really good basketball program, but not anymore. So you got, ever since UNLV left the Big West Conference, it took its shine, it took its reputation, it took its interest with them. So you have UC Irvine, you have UCSB, you have Hawaii, UC Riverside, Long Beach State. I wonder if, I wonder if Snoop's going to be at that game. Big Sky Conference, Montana, Weber State, Northern Colorado, Eastern Washington, Montana State, big fucking deal. The MEAC, another black, historically black university. In college institutions, you have North Carolina A&T, you have Virginia State, you have Norfolk State, you have Howard University. They're bands when you speak about some of these squads or some of these teams from the MEAC and from the Southwest Southwest Athletic Conference. Their bands are fantastic. Their bands are awesome. Their athletic teams suck. But um, the only thing that's great about the MEAC and the Southwest Athletic Conference is the fact that it's an HBCU school. The fact that they have the most beautiful females on the planet going there. And the fact that you can get yourself a fantastic education, grown as a man and grow as a black person, learn your roots and learn your history and learn something about yourself, gain a little self-pride about yourself, gain a little pride about who you are, where you're going, what you need to do to get there, and some of the obstacles that this country will put in front of you that you have to overcome to get to the goals, to get to the dreams, to get to your aspirations. So that's one of the great things for a black person to be going to a Southwestern Athletic Conference school or even a... Me at school. One thing that's not going to be happening is playing in really good sports because the football team suck and the basketball team suck. I tell you one thing, man. You know, with this election coming up, 
and it's coming down between Joe Biden, and it's coming down between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, and you see the Democratic Party just overflowing, gushing, just, man, you, you would really think that whether it be Warren, Elizabeth Warren, or Buttigieg, or Klobuchar, or uh, Sanders, or Bloomberg, or any of these guys who were trying to be the nominee for the Democratic Party, man, you swore that these folks have been living the black experience for like 40 years or something like that. The way they were just kissing our asses, man. Oh, black folks, wish we need to do something for you. Oh, my goodness, there's systemic racism that's in this country. We just need to do something. I just feel so horrible about it. I can just barely breathe. I, can, I, can, I can't function as a human being because I'm so concerned about black people and how they're being discriminated against and how they're being marginalized as a, as a race and all of these type of things. I mean, these people are just bending over backwards in terms of, oh, my goodness, if, if you elect me, if you, you know, if you give me the honor to represent you for the Democratic nominee for the President of the United States. I swear I'll do everything. I'll do anything for you. Of course, short of reparations. But oh my goodness, I've got these plans and i got those plans. And oh my goodness, when I'm in the White House and putting my agenda together, you can best believe that black folks, you don't have to worry about poverty. You don't have to worry about crime. You don't have to worry about... You don't have to worry about segregation. You don't have to worry about discrimination. You don't have to worry about police brutality. You don't have to worry about a biased judicial system. You don't have to worry about drugs on the street and gun violence and gang violence and inequity and, and you know unequal opportunities. Oh, you don't have to worry about any of that nonsense when I'm the nominee and when I'm sitting in the White House and I'm sitting there listening to these folks up here just drop to their knees and asking us to pull down our pants so they can show us how how much they want to do for us. And I'm sitting up there saying, hey, you know what, y'all? Do us a favor, man. Don't patronize us. Don't bullshit us. Man, give us something. Give us something concrete. Give us something for real. Don't give us platitude. Don't give us sympathy. Hey, as James Brown said, man, don't give me, don't give me, a, don't give me sympathy. Don't don't give me uh, integration. Give me truth communication. Don't give me sorrow. Give me equal opportunity so I can live tomorrow. Give me schools. Give me better books so I can improve myself and true and gain my true looks. Do that for me. And one of the things that these folks need to do is what can we do, Joe Biden? What can we do? That hopefully he'll be the nominee for the Democratic Party. What can you do, Senator Biden? What can you do, Vice President Biden, to do something about the plight? of the black, historically black colleges and universities athletic teams, mainly in football and basketball programs. What can you do? Because, man, right now we are in embarrassment. Historically rich black colleges, and I mentioned before, Howard and A&T and Florida A&M and FAMU, uh, I just mentioned, and Mississippi Valley State and all these, all these wonderful, fabulous colleges, man, that none of these kids are going to in terms of the five-star recruits. Damn, man, can we do something? Can we that, forget funding about, you know, I'm going to fund historically black colleges. I think that was Elizabeth Warren's, you know, jabbering about, oh, I'm going to do something to give uh, historically black colleges money so they can do that. Man, do something to where, hey, man, if you're black, I wouldn't even mind if Joe Biden came up with a rule saying, guess what, man, if you're a basketball player and you're a five-star recruit, you have to go to a, <laughs> you have to go to a, an HBCU. <laughs> Just, 
I mean, hell, y'all going pro after one year anyway. I mean, you know, what the hell? I mean, you know, it don't matter. You might as well go there and have some fun and learn a little bit about yourself before you go into the NBA. Shit, half the league is black anyway. You might as well, right? Right? I mean, damn, folks go to Maryland. Folks go to uh, these five-star recruits from the area, right, where I grew up, Maryland, the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, right? You know, these guys who went to DeMatha for high school and they went to these schools and they were recruited by John Thompson and they were recruited by Lefty Drizelle, you know, these schools in the Big East when the Big East was rocking and rolling and dominating college basketball in the ACC where you had such great coaches as Dean Smith and Krzyzewski and Lefty Drizelle and, you know, and, and Jimmy Valvano and all these guys. And these guys are going after, you know, the, the local talent. And either these guys would go to, if they weren't going to go to Duke or Wake Forest or North Carolina or something like that, if they stayed around and they went to Maryland or Georgetown, right? Well, yeah, you know, they would go to the school and they would graduate or do whatever and go to the classes there. But in terms of having fun, in terms of mingling, in terms of having a social life, man, they went over to Howard University, man. They went over to these functions down at Howard. We would go out, me and my buddy, Mikel Davis, my my closer than brother, Mikel Davis, man, every Saturday night, Friday night, we would go out and we would go to celebrities down in Northwest D.C. There was a joint that we used to go to in Northeast D.C. where, you know, it was all black and the females were just unbelievable. I mean, we're talking about college days, so we're talking about girls who went to historically black colleges, right? I mean, Howard University or such and or UDC, at the time, University of District of Columbia, you know, black, the black girls would go there. So we would see these girls at these clubs and right there in line, waiting to get in, you know, Mac and doing their thing with X-Ray Hip and all these other guys from Georgetown and guys from Maryland and guys from all these other colleges, George, George Washington, and all of these guys would be coming down, these black college basketball players, man, and they'd be hanging out at Howard, they'd be hanging out at the um, at the NAACP events in terms of the inner caucus events where they'd had dances or where they've had parties and clubs and everything. And I'm thinking to myself, man, why are you always the, 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 number one? Continue to go to Georgetown. But I'll be telling these Maryland guys, man, why are you all wasting your time going to Maryland, man? Why don't you go down to Howard, turn that program around, become the big man on campus, have access to these females 24-7. You stay there one, two, three years, have yourself a time of your life, you go out, get drafted in the first round, make your millions of dollars, and you're set with the foundation that's being laid down for you by the historically black colleges and universities, give you a sense of self, give you a sense of pride in who you are, to carry yourself into the workplace, whether it be playing basketball, whether it be playing football or anything else. It was just like, man, what are you guys doing? And look, because we get to play in the ACC, because we get to play on television. Fuck that, man. You're good enough to where in six months, eight months, ten months, you'll be playing on television almost every night when you're the first-round draft pick in the NBA. So who cares? Man, man. I mean, Georgetown has some cuties. Maryland has some cuties. I mean, hell, they had to have some cuties in Maryland about 50 million people go to that school. But in terms of just beautiful women, nobody, nothing, no college. I don't care. I don't care. Get out your list of most beautiful females going to college, blah, blah, blah. They always date the lily white schools all over the country. No, no. For a certain portion of people, especially from my community and people who play sports and people from my community who play sports at a high level who are 
God gifted and blessed enough to have the talent that they can go and be recruited by the top tier schools in the country like a Duke and Kentucky and Kansas and such. No, man, <laughs> you got to go down to Howard, Howard University, North Carolina State A&T. Why are you going to be going to Duke in North Carolina? You can't tell me. And yes, again, I'll say it again. Chapel Hill, I'm quite sure they have some absolute cuties, some very, very attractive females walking around that campus who would like to get to know themselves a lot better with the basketball players and the football players. I'm quite sure, but damn, they ain't even close to what you can get at like North Carolina A&T, or maybe if you're going to be going to Georgia Tech or Georgia, I know Georgia is out in Athens, but man, you know, you got Atlanta University, I mean, Atlanta University, excuse me, you got Atlanta, Georgia, man, I and mean, you got a whole lot of connections where you can get with the bougie blacks who like to go down there and think that they're better because they made it because they're living in Atlanta, and that makes them better than every, every other black that's living anywhere else because... That's why we call them bougie blacks, because they go down there and talk about, oh, I'm from Atlanta, oh, I'm living in Atlanta now, so my shit don't stink. But damn, you're talking about Spellman, you're talking about Morris Brown, you're talking about all of those black, historically black colleges down there, with those beautiful women walking around that campus, woo, man, talking about dying and going to heaven. I was 18 years old, man, I was a senior in high school when I took that trip to visit the black universities. I went to Virginia State. I went to Spelman. I went to Morehouse. I went to Clark. I went to Morris Brown. I went to Virginia Union. I went to Howard. I went to a and I visited all them schools. And one thing that was for sure, there were some just girls that just, man, just unbelievable, unflipping believable. So in all of this tirade, in all of this rant, in all of this rambling that I'm doing here, is the fact that damn black, historically black colleges and universities I wish they could do something to get some of these five-star recruits, to get some of these folks to, instead of going to Duke or North Carolina, they go to North Carolina A&T. Instead of going to Maryland, they go to Howard. Notice I didn't say Howard. Notice I didn't say Georgetown. But if they're going to be going to Anthony Cohen, why are you going to why are you going to Maryland when you could have gone to Howard? You know, Virginia State, Norfolk. I don't know. I don't know. Arkansas, Pine Buck. Pine, uh, Pine Bluff. Why don't y'all go to Arkansas? Go to APB. I mean, I don't know. Alcorn State, Fairview. Do, do, go, do something, right? Do something. So, that was my rant for today. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So, doggone glad that you could be with us. Yeah, so basically, you know, these some of these second-tier, <clears throat> some of these second-tier college basketball tournaments, man, I will not be watching. I will not be watching at all. It's always funny because there's one thing that I love is watching the highlights when some of these teams from the Patriot League or the Big Sky or the American East or whatever, they win their championship and they, they storm the floor and they start cutting down the nets and they start running around and they start jumping on each other and pointing up the we're number one sign and they pick the picture with a trophy and it's like, woohoo, we're the conference champs, we're going dancing. And everybody has these signs, we're going dancing, we're going dancing, AC, NCAA tournament bound, woohoo, woohoo. Then you fast forward about five days later and they're in a half-empty gym and they're sitting there bedazzled and bewildered after losing my 35 or 40 points to Kansas or Gonzaga or or, or Duke or North Carolina. That's like, well, at least we got the opportunity to play Duke. Big fucking deal. At least we got the opportunity to play Duke in front of a half-empty half arena and get blown out by 40. Hip, hip, hooray. Like a week ago, we were running around, jumping on each other, hanging on the baskets, cutting down the nets, throwing Gatorade showers and all this kind of nonsense because we won the Patriot League. Woohoo! So, give me a break. 
Again, I always find that dichotomy very, very funny. And again, as I mentioned before, the NCAA Basketball Championship Week in college basketball is the same as bowl season in college football. Programming for alumni at the schools, gamblers, and gives these guys on ESPN something to talk about other than, where's Tom Brady going to play? What happened about Dak Prescott? Is he going to be franchised by the Dallas by the Dallas Cowboys? Oh my goodness, is, what's going to be going on with Tom Brady? What's going to be happening with Tom Brady? Where's Tom Brady going to play this year? Where's Tom Brady going to play next year? Is Tom Brady good enough to win a Super Bowl? What about Tom Brady? Tom Brady? Tom Brady? So it, at least, because free agency starts next week, at least it gives us a little breathing room not to listen to that bullshit day in and day out. If you decide that you want to watch Sports Center. What did Archie Miller call them? The Sesame Street show? <laughs> unless, unless you want to watch Sesame Street and listen to uh, Oscar the Grouch and, um, and, and others, you know, sit there and pontificate about where Tom Brady should go and what he should do and all this kind of nonsense. At least talking about the college basketball term, tournament gives us a brief respite from that bullshit. So, I guess, in all actuality, while I find them quite annoying sometimes and something that I can ignore and have my viewing habits go somewhere else, at least if it can take us off a week of not finding out where Tom Brady is going and not reading into every little look and every little sign and every little tweet and every little glance concerning Tom Brady and where he's going to be going and playing football next season, if you want to talk a little Big Sky Conference basketball, if you want to show some highlights from the Big West Conference Tournament, it's all right with me. Buenos dias, mi amigos. Me llamo Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us here on Wendell's World in Sports. Talking about what's going down in the world of sports. Good weekend for LeBron James, the Los Angeles Lakers, as we transfer over to the transition over to the NBA, put themselves at the top of the line for contenders for the championship, at least for this week. Um, best team. They beat the best team in the Eastern Conference in the Milwaukee Bucks on Friday night, 113-103. LeBron James, LeBron James, LeBron James had 37 points, 8 rebounds, 7 assists. He had 14 points in the thir third quarter when the Lakers took the lead and then pulled ahead. He shot 20, uh, 12 of 21 from the field. You know that man shot 1 of 7 from the three-point line? So if you do the math, you take away the three-pointers, that man shot 13... What? No, 11 for 14 from the two-point line and 1-7 from the three-point line and played 37 minutes. Anthony Davis had 30 points, 9 rebounds in 29 minutes, closed the game with 14 points in the fourth quarter. Um, It was a good performance, solid performance by the Lakers. I have people up here talking about, you know, the Lakers now the best team. Let's kind of like not jump the gun a little bit. I mean, the, the Milwaukee Bucks did beat the Lakers. In fact, they routed the Lakers when they played 
LA at home. So one to one in terms of the series is concerned. I'm not really going to be jumping up and down and talking about, wow, the Lakers are the best team based on that. I mean, let's kind of continue to do the body of work. Now, you can make the argument that the Lakers are playing in a tougher conference and they're only four games behind the Bucks in terms of having the best record, but I don't think this game right here in, indicates anything in terms of which team is significantly better or which team would be favored, just like I didn't take too much away from when the Bucks beat the Lakers back when the Bucks played them on their home court. So, you know, I don't, I don't really worry about that. But, you know, LeBron is still doing his thing. And I, and I think now, especially with the performance that he had against both the Milwaukee Bucks and the Los, and the Los Angeles Clippers back-to-back, this theory, this notion, in which I was kind of buying into myself. So I'm raising my hand as far as, like, you know, laugh at me first because I was also the one kind of concerned about this was, you know, when we're speaking about LeBron's age and the fact that he didn't miss a lot of time last season because of injury, and you knew that LeBron missing the playoffs, having the disappointing season that he did in his first year for L.A., you knew that he was going to come out like a house on fire, especially with the acquisition of Anthony Davis. You knew that he was going to try to rectify the disappointment, which was the season before, and he was going to go out and try to do everything, which includes play defense on a consistent basis and do everything that he could to remind people why he still in his mind believes that he's the best basketball player on planet earth and I thought to myself yeah that's fine and yeah that might be great and yeah when it comes down to the beginning of 2020 that LeBron might be putting up numbers that we could be talking about talking about him being the MVP of the league but I thought because of the age and because of the mileage and because of the responsibility that he's had throughout his career to be the man on the court that eventually he would get injured. And I'm not talking about breaking a limb or tearing a ligament or anything like that, but just your common, I'm getting old, I'm not as young as I used to be type of injuries, nagging, something that would kind of pester him throughout the entire year, not to the fact that he would fall off a cliff in terms of his efficiency, but kind of dampen, kind of hamper, kind of put a ceiling on how dominant that he could be. And I always thought that because of LeBron's age, that when we would get down to this point of the season where you're speaking about having 20 to 21 games left to go in the season, that Anthony Davis would be the guy that LeBron would have to pass the baton to and say, hey, big man, this is the reason why you got we got you from New Orleans. This was the reason why we rescued you from Dell Demps in that situation and the Benson family in that situation in New Orleans. You wanted to be in the situation. You wanted to have the spotlight. You wanted to have this responsibility. You wanted to be relevant now. Well, here's your chance because playing in, playing in New Orleans, I mean, Anthony Davis was kind of lost in the shuffle in terms of great players were concerned. When you were speaking about the times that he was doing a thing in New Orleans, I mean, you had other players you were having speaking about, or you were talking about Steph Curry, and you were talking about the Golden State Warriors with Clay and Dre and KD, and you were speaking about Russell Westbrook putting up triple doubles, and you were talking about James Harden putting up big numbers, and you were still talking about the greatness of LeBron James, and all of these great players going are going along, and you never really thought about Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis was always that, oh, yeah, yeah, him too, yeah, yeah. It's like, name me great players. Well, Russ Westbrook and Harden and... And, and LeBron and Steph and KD and da 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 yeah yeah anybody else um um what about Anthony Davis oh yeah yeah him too yeah him too 
He was always that, oh yeah, him too guy. Now with him going to L.A., now all of a sudden there is no, oh yeah, him too guy. Now Anthony Davis has a chance to be part of that, well, we're start, starting about naming really great players in the NBA. Anthony Davis's name now is going to be called fifth and sixth and seventh rather than, oh yeah, I forgot, he's also really great. I forgot about him. He's no longer that guy. He wanted that responsibility. So I thought that LeBron in his advancing years, especially during this time, would kind of slow it down just a little bit, start pacing himself, and that Anthony Davis would be the guy that was going to be the best player on the team. I thought that LeBron, by this time right now, would have done what Dwayne Wade did when LeBron came in and said, hey, look, big man, if we're going to win a championship, you have got to be the best guy on this team. You have got to have that mentality. You have got to have that type of leadership. It was the same thing in the late 80s, 1986-87 season, when Pat Riley went to Kareem and said, hey, look, this is Magic's team now. I mean, he's got to be the one that's going to take care of the scoring. He's got to be the one that's going to be the leader of this team in terms of scoring and having an impact on the game. Cap, we still need you. Make no mistake about it. But now it's time. If we're going to win that championship, because you saw what Houston did to us, losing 4-1 to in that Western Conference Finals, we're going to get back and start winning the championship. This needs to now transition from being your team the focal point on offense and defense and everything in between, that needs to change from it being your main responsibility to Irvin's main responsibility. And I need for you to go along with that. Same thing with Tim Duncan. Every great player, usually if they play long enough, reaches that point to where if I want to continue to win championships, this is what I have to do. David Robinson did that with Tim Duncan. Tim Duncan did that with Tony Parker. It happens. It's just, just the way it goes. LeBron, I thought, was going to have to do the same thing with AD. Now, I thought he was going to do it this year. There'll come a time down the road, and the way LeBron is playing, hell, it might be four or five years down the road being facetious. But um, there's going to come a time where LeBron's going to come to AD and say, look, you're going to have to be this guy. You are going to have to be the go-to guy. You're going to have to be the guy in the half-court set that are going to, that's going to be getting the ball, initiating the offense, the go-to scorer. You're going to have to be the guy that's going to guard the best player down the stretch and for the majority of the game. You're the guy that on defense is, is going to have to anchor everything. You are going to have to be all of a sudden now that top three, four, five player in the game because I can't do it anymore. I can only do it in small spurts. I can't do it enough to where we're going to win a championship. I thought LeBron was going to give that responsibility over to AD sometime in January or February while he was injured. That hasn't happened. And the way LeBron is rolling right now, that's not going to happen this season. AD is going to be Robin to LeBron's Batman. It looked like in this scenario, hey, guess what, man? We're still talking about 1983, 84, 1982, 83 Los Angeles Lakers where Kareem was Batman and Magic was Robin. We're talking about a situation with the Boston Celtics, 1985, 1986, where Larry Bird was Batman and Kevin McHale was Robin. We're talking about the Bulls in the 90s where Michael Jordan was Batman and Scottie Pippen was Robin. We're talking about the Los Angeles Lakers winning dynasties in the 2000s where Shaquille O'Neal was Batman and Kobe Bryant was Robin. We're talking about this two-peat that the Lakers had when Kobe Bryant was Batman and Paul Gasol was Robin. If the Lakers now are going to be winning that championship, they're going to have to follow the same script in terms of LeBron being Batman, Dwayne Wade being Robin. They're going to have to follow that same type of script where Steph Curry is Batman, Kevin Durant is Batman plus, and Klay Thompson and Draymond are splitting the duties between Robin. If the Lakers are going to win that championship, then LeBron is going to have to maintain his stature of being Batman 
and Anthony Davis is going to have to be a really damn good Robin. And so far, he's been a Robin plus. I mean, he's been a Robin outside of puberty. When was Robin doing anything, by the way, when he was like 14, 15 years old? Holy Batman! Holy, I can't believe this is happening there, Robin. So, but, uh, you know, that's what, um, that's what Anthony Davis is going to have to be. And so far this season, he's been doing great. And one of the things he's going to have to do to continue that is to continue to maintain relative health. We're not asking asking Anthony Davis to play 82 games. We're not asking him to play 78 games. Even if he was injury-free, I don't think the Lakers would be smart to play him that many games. Anthony Davis, body structure, I don't know what it is, but he's always going to have some type of nagging, annoying type of injury, whether it be to his shoulder or to his back or to his ribs or to his ankles or to his feet or to his fingers or to his wrist. I mean, Anthony Davis always has these type of annoying type of deals that has to be monitored. You know what I mean? Throughout his career. But he's still a fantastic, fabulous player. Anthony Davis, I thought the accumulation of those type of nagging injuries with the responsibilities that LeBron was going to put on him, I thought wouldn't have the Lakers in the position that they're in right now. Boy, was I wrong. Anthony Davis has been fantastic. LeBron James, outside of Giannis, and you can make a strong argument, has been the MVP not just of the month, not just of the half season, but the entire season. And right now, he's got the Lakers absolutely rolling. And they played a great game. And, you know, you can sit there and talk about, well, this was a show-me game, and this was something where LeBron had wanted to remind Giannis Adenokupo that he's still the man, that he's still the best player in the league. Eh, I'm quite sure LeBron being the competitor, I'm quite sure that went into it just a little bit. But I also believe LeBron, where he's talking about, hey, look, man, I just want to just win this basketball play when the basketball game, we're playing a, a great team and we're playing a great player. When, when was LeBron, when have you known LeBron to back down from a challenge outside of the first finals against the Dallas Mavericks? So his resume since then has shown that the bigger the challenge, the more anxious that he is to go ahead and face that challenge. And with Adenokupo, I don't think there's any type of anger or angst or jealousy toward Adenokupo like he had toward Steph Curry, but... I think he respects Adenokupo's game. I think he respects the the publicity and all the accolades that he's getting. I'm quite, I'm quite sure he does that. But, hey, you know what? He wants to win a basketball game. He knows how important it is to win a basketball game. He knows how important he has to be to win a basketball game. And when you're getting no production from the other players, such as Danny Green and Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee and KCP, and during, that, uh, during the game against Milwaukee, it was incumbent upon him and AD to take over the responsibility of scoring and rebounding and doing all the things that they need to do. And that's what LeBron James did. Again, to the tune of 37 points, eight rebounds, and seven assists. And it's not like he shut down Giannis. It's not like Giannis had a horrible game. Giannis had 32 points. He didn't have the, he didn't have the impact that maybe he wanted to have, of course, because they lost the game. But, but he, he wasn't stifled to the point where it was a decisive, no doubt about it, knockout in terms of, oh, well, shit, of course, we've got to give the MVP to LeBron. Now, you see what he did on Friday night to Giannis Adenokupo? Ha, 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 ha. No, it wasn't anything like that. One thing that I did see, though, from Milwaukee, and, you know, Milwaukee, and I don't know if they can still maintain it because Giannis is having an MRI on his knee, and I know that he missed the game against Phoenix over the weekend in which they lost, and I don't think that he's playing tonight either because he's going to be missing the last two games. I think the Bucks are in Denver tonight. But um, 
There were some things a lot of people are sitting there talking about, even though the Bucks, the Bucks are going to win 70 games and they're a really good defensive team. They got a deep bench and they got a really good coach and they're the load management for Giannis because they've been blowing everybody out. He doesn't have to play 35, 36 minutes a night, so he's not being taxed in terms of uh, him running out of gas. He's got enough, more than enough of the tank for the playoffs and beyond. And all of these things, of course, you have the storyline of they're going to be hungrier. They're going to be more focused. They went through the learning process of last season where they lost a 2-0 lead in the Eastern Conference Championship to the Toronto Raptors. So that's been their platform. That's been their foundation to move forward, to put into another gear. Now they know. Now they're hungry. Now they're focused. Now they're determined. Now they're out for revenge. All of these storylines that they're throwing out there. Even though the Milwaukee Bucks have all of that going for them. The revenge factor. They're playing really good defense. They have the best player in the league. They're deep. They're managing the their players well. They're blowing everybody out. Their point differential for a while was over 13 points a game. They're going to be on track to win 70 games. And they're, they're not going to even have to press because of how dominant they've been being. Despite all of these things, multiple reports. I've told you before, Brian Windhorst, listening to his podcast, he was, he was talking about teams still feel despite all of these positives that I was talking about concerning the Milwaukee Bucks, that there is a chance, there is some hope, there is some some thought that if you get Milwaukee in a tight situation, if you get Milwaukee in deep waters, which they haven't been this season for the most part on the whole, that they will revert back to their old ways. And Chris Middleton hasn't shown that he can be a superstar player in the playoffs. Eric Bledsoe has shown that he can't even be a competent player on a consistent basis in the playoffs. Giannis still can't shoot from outside 18 feet. Mike Budenholzer hadn't showed that he can take a team despite winning 60 games, despite having really good regular season records. He hadn't shown that he can be a coach that can take the team over to a hump and get them to the NBA Finals. That all of these things, all of these thoughts, all of these situations will come into play and rear their ugly head for the Milwaukee Bucks once the playoffs starts. That's especially, but essentially the Milwaukee Bucks are the Washington Capitals of the of the NBA before Washington won themselves a Stanley Cup. When Washington was winning president trophies for having the best record and they were blowing out everybody and then as soon as they got into the playoffs, either Sidney Crosby of the Pittsburgh Penguins or somebody somebody would beat this team and we'd be sitting there talking about, well, damn, man, for like four or five months, Barry Melrose was talking about how fabulous, how wonderful, how dominant, how without question the Washington Capitals are the best team in the league type of talk are. And then they get to the second round of the Stanley Cup Finals and they lose in six games to the Pittsburgh Penguins who came in fourth. How did that work? Many people are equating that to the Milwaukee Bucks. Yeah, great, go ahead and win your 70 games. Yeah, great, go ahead and have your point differential at 13. Yeah, great, go ahead and, you know, have your margin of wins over the next team be 8, 9, 10 games. Yeah, sure, go ahead and have your home court advantage throughout the entire playoffs. We all know, whether you're on the road or at home, we all know there's going to come a time where it's going to be a two or three point game with four minutes left to go in the fourth quarter, and you guys are going to <laughs> choke just like you motherfuckers did last season in the Eastern Conference Finals against the Toronto Raptors. Now, the difference is many people also have to figure out or also have to remind themselves is the fact that, yeah, Milwaukee might have gone down the tubes or might have gone down the drain, but the Toronto Raptors had this guy named Kawhi Leonard who had won a championship with the San Antonio Spurs, who had been to an NBA Finals and faced a heartbreak of losing like the way they did to the Miami Heat. 
and then got their revenge. So Toronto had that ace in terms of Kawhi Leonard to have Kawhi put Toronto, put that franchise on his back after game two and lead them to the Eastern Conference Championship and then ultimately the NBA Championship. There's nobody in the Eastern Conference that year, this year that can actually say that. There's no one if you speak about it. Boston doesn't have anybody that had that type of experience. Philadelphia doesn't have anybody with that type of experience. Indiana doesn't have anybody with that type of experience. Toronto, now that Ka- Kawhi is gone, what, maybe Pascal Siakam? That guy doesn't have the stature. That guy is not at the level yet to where he can do what Kawhi Leonard did last season. So that's one thing that could be in Milwaukee's favor, even if they do get to that situation to face that situation. Even if some of those old habits or maybe some of those feelings start to come up in a tight game and an important game, that luckily for Milwaukee, as they're battling their own demons to try to stay calm and navigate the navigate the, 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 the Iranian wrestling waters, that the other team also doesn't have anybody who can take advantage of the fears and the weaknesses that Milwaukee showed after game three, four, five, and six that Kawhi Leonard and the Toronto Raptors did last season. But, yeah, Giannis against the Lakers, man, what did he do? 32 points, 10 of 21 shooting. He went 1-6 from the three-point line and with 11 rebounds. He scored, scored 12 points in the fourth quarter to get them back in the game. You know, I was watching the game, though, because you take a look, all of his points, most of his points, of course, comes on Euro step drives and at the rim. You know what? Everybody is up there focusing on Giannis needs to make three-pointers. Giannis needs to shoot three-pointers. Man, I just want to see. They they back off Giannis so much when they play him for fear of the drive that she doesn't need to worry about shooting a three-pointer. They're giving him a wide-open top-of-the-key jumper. They're backing off him so much that he can take a in rhythm, take a deep breath, focus, take a nice, work and think about your fundamentals, 17, 18-footer. So if I'm up there, and yeah, you would like for him to shoot three-pointers, and hopefully by the time he's 28, 29 years old, he can develop himself to be maybe a 35, 36% three-point shooter on four or five or six attempts per game. But for as for right now or for the next year or two, the two things that I would be stressing to Giannis is the fact that A, Man, don't worry about, don't worry about the three-point shot. Work on that pull-up 17-footer. Work on that pull-up, you know, left baseline extended jumper. Work on that left of the key 17-footer. Work on that top of the key jumper. Pull up after one dribble or such. Because as soon as you put your head down, you stomp your feet, and you put that hard dribble with your right or left hand, your defender goes back. I mean, he sprints back underneath the basket because he knows that's where you're going. You just put that one dribble in rise and shoot that little 15, 17, 18-foot jumper. That's there uncontested all night long. We talk about if Giannis can develop a three-point shot, it's over for you know, it's over for the league. If he can develop a 17-foot jumper, an 18-foot jumper, which he shoots with confidence, which he shoots you know, consistently, instead of putting his head down and trying to Euro-step his way to the basket through three people, trying to swivel his way through two or three defenders. If he can kind of mitigate that and just work on that jump shot to where he can pull from 15, 17 feet from any corner, any elbow, top of the key, it's going to be all over. It's going to be good night for anybody in the Eastern Conference in terms of what they can try to do to stop this team and stop this guy. So 
work on that pull-up jumper and work on some... I don't understand why he also doesn't work on some low post moves. As long, as lanky, as wirely strong as he is, and he has good footwork around the basket, I don't know why he doesn't try to incorporate some Kevin McHale moves or some Kevin Garnett moves, a little up and under. He's got great footwork, so I don't know why, and, and maybe it's still a work in progress, but if I'm Budenholzer, and he knows a lot more about the team than I do, but one of the questions I would ask him is, you know, what was what is your reluctance, or is it a reluctance, to see what you can do to put Giannis in the post every once in a while and try to run some offense with him with his back, back to the basket from 8, 10 feet on the left block or the right block. Maybe he doesn't have the skill set yet, but I, he, I remember in the Lakers, against the Lakers on Friday, against LeBron, he had a nice little shimmy shake, dream shake, for a fadeaway from the middle of the key from about eight feet over LeBron that went in. And I'm sitting there going, why did they do that more often? Interesting. Very interesting. So, you know, Milwaukee Bucks, man. I mean, where's Chris Middleton? There's another thing I'd be concerned about if I'm Milwaukee. I mean, Chris Middleton against L.A. scored 15 points. Shot 5 of 19. No, he scored 12 points. He shot 5 of 19 from the floor, 2 of 10 from the three-point range. We're speaking about duos. We're speaking about dynamic duos. The Lakers have one, A.D. LeBron. The Clippers have one, uh, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. The Boston Celtics possibly have one. It could be a combination of Jason Tatum and either Jalen Brown or Timber Walker. If the Bucks make it to the finals and they have to play one of the Los Angeles teams and they have to go up against, I mean, I, I have total confidence that LeBron-Giannis matchup, Giannis-Kawhi matchup, that could be played pretty much even through seven games. The key is going to be, what about that superstar? What about that Robin? Who's going to play the better Robin? if Milwaukee makes it to the finals and has to play the Los Angeles Clippers, Giannis, Kawhi are going to cancel each other out. Leaves us now to Paul George versus Chris Middleton. Middleton hasn't shown the ability to raise his game. He didn't do it last year when they needed him against Toronto. And in a game like this, he didn't show it at all. You know, he's not a role player to where, yeah, you know, you expect maybe someone like an Eric Bledsoe or a Dante DiVincenzo or a Brooke Lopez or something like that. You expect them to play pretty well at home because it's their home court, the routine, staying at their own place, the routine, this, that, the other. And you expect their games just to dip a little on the road. It's expected because they're not superstar players. They're role players. But you expect guys like Giannis and Chris Middleton to step up their game and be the leaders whether it be on the road or at home. You expect a big game, especially an important game, especially a playoff game. You expect Giannis and Chris Middleton to perform on you, to perform for you on a consistently high level because they're superstars. Because one's a generational superstar and the other one should be a traditional superstar. LeBron, generational superstar. Anthony Davis, superstar. Kawhi Leonard, generational superstar. Paul George, superstar. Jason Tatum working his way, not there yet, but he's two or three, four years away from being generational superstar. Kimball Walker, Jalen Brown working their way to be all-stars. What is Chris Middleton doing? What is Chris Middleton's ceiling? Is it superstar? Is he the guy that you can really be counted for? Counted on to be that guy, to help lead your team, to be that Robin, to be the 
to be the the, 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 the the nice other guy next to the generational superstar with Giannis is. He's being paid like it. Middleton's being paid like it. I mean, there is no other way to go. You're not going to be able to trade the guy and get themselves someone better. So, if you got, if, if the Milwaukee Bucks are going to win the championship, I'm not worried about Giannis. I'm more worried about what Chris Middleton is going to give me. I'm more worried about what Eric Bledsoe is going to do for me. Again, against L.A. on Friday, 11 points, 5 for 13 shooting, 5 turnovers, 3 assists. God damn it, looks like a replay from last season. Looked like a replay from a couple of seasons ago against Boston. Damn, damn, damn. <sighs> so those are the questions that I have about the Milwaukee Bucks. Not um, Giannis Adenokupo. I'm quite sure that he'll be fine. But those are some of the things that I took away from the game against the Milwaukee Bucks versus the Los Angeles Lakers on Friday. So, yeah, Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. The dog, I'm glad that you could be with us. Then we had... The game on Sunday where you had the Clippers play the Lakers. And again, L.A. prevailing, 112-103. James was excellent again, 28 points, 7 rebounds, 9 assists. Davis was fantastic, 30 points, 11 of 19 shooting, 8 rebounds in 34 minutes. Excellent game from Avery Bradley, 24 points, 9 of 17 shooting. He played great defense in 33 minutes. Got Lou Williams a technical with his badgering on defense, so... Good win for the Lakers. First loss of the season for the Clippers in which they had their full roster or which they had Paul George and Kawhi Leonard and Patrick Beverly and Lou Williams and Montrez Harold and Ivan Zubac and all those guys playing. So this was the squad that Doc Rivers hopes to have for the playoffs. They were there, they were playing, and this was the first loss in 11 games that those guys were rip-roaring ready to go as a full-functioning team. Now, the key is for the next couple of weeks as we move to the playoffs for the Clippers is, of course, that you want to continue with the continuity of the Paul George-Kawhi Leonard tandem getting better, getting more comfortable. If you're speaking about them uh, not playing as many games as you would hope because of injury, because of load management, whatever you want to say. But the Los Angeles Clippers, in terms of the tandem of Paul George and Kawhi Leonard that we saw on Sunday, I don't think it's going to be the same dynamic duo that we'll be seeing in a month or two or three or four weeks once the playoffs start. I think they'll be much more cohesive. I think they'll be much more uh, together in terms of their abilities, in terms of their understandings of each other and the way they play. So we'll be looking for a better game. We'll be looking for a better game from them. But they were absolutely killed on the glass, on the offensive glass, gave the Lakers other opportunities. I just don't think that the Clippers matched the Lakers' fever, passion for the game on Sunday. It just seemed to me, and I hate to use this cliche, but it just seemed to me that the Lakers wanted the game a little bit more than the Los Angeles Clippers. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, the on Glad that you could be with us. One interesting thing and one impressive thing I have to say, though, about the Lakers is the fact that they won both games in many different ways. If you take a look at the game against Milwaukee, they went with a bigger lineup. They had JaVale McGee and Dwight Howard playing a combined 31 minutes. And then against the Clippers, because Montrose Harold was out there, the centers, McGee and Howard, played only 19 minutes. In fact, Dwight played only seven. And Davis, Anthony Davis, was at the center position. And I think... Moving forward, and, you know, Davis has always been the, one of those guys where, like, hey, man, I'm not a center, I'm a power forward. You know, I'm a 
I'm a Tim Duncan guy, so I want to be a Tim Duncan type forward. I want to be a Tim Duncan type of power forward. But many people don't know this, the fact that really Tim Duncan was a power forward in name only. When it came down to the actual responsibilities he had, it was one of a center. So especially in today's game, we're just speaking about small ball. Anthony Davis is going to have to be that guy that's going to have to play the center. If you're speaking about the best team that L.A. could put on the floor, I think it's going to be with... Anthony Davis at the center position. And then, you, yeah, playing playing Nikola Jokic is going to be a bitch. Yeah, playing Steven Adams is going to be a bitch, without question. There's some big boys in the Western Conference to where if they make it to the playoffs and who they're playing, you know, the, the um, <clears throat> Anthony Davis is going to have a handful as far as physicality-wise because Steven Adams is built like a, like a skyscraper and Nikola Jokic is no small spring chicken either. So, so uh, yeah, it's going to be... Interesting, but I think the best position for Anthony Davis to play in the playoffs is center. And this is an interesting fact when you're speaking about L.A., according to Alliance Sports Bureau. The Lakers defeated two of the top four teams in the NBA in back-to-back games for the first time since February 5th, 2009, when they beat the Celtics and the Cavaliers. If you remember the Celtics, that was uh, Ray John Rondo, Kevin, Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, Doc Rivers type of uh, team. And then they beat the Cavaliers, which at that time was being led by a guy named LeBron James. So the Lakers won their fourth game in a row, 11 out of the last 12. I know they slept walk through Memphis last week. John Morant got all, got all busty on them with a really good performance. But for the most part, L.A. has been rolling. The Lakers have been rolling. But again, to put it in perspective, they beat Milwaukee at home. This game was around, I don't know, 6 to 13, 14 points for most of the second half. So it wasn't a complete blowout. They beat the Clippers for the first time in three tries this season. So let's just calm down. If you're taking a look at areas for concern for L.A., who's going to be that third guy? Who? Who's going to consistently be the third or fourth guy to help LeBron and A.D.? Is it going to be Kuzma, Danny Green, Avery Bradley, KCP, Marquise Morris? Who's going to be? Because if you take a look at the game against Milwaukee on Friday and what they shot, I don't know, a negative 4,000 from the three-point line, other than James and AD, the team shot 14 of 46 from the field and 5 for 21 from the three-point line. Who's going to be that guy? I don't trust Kuzma. Danny Green had a horrible and inconsistent playoff performance uh, series uh, uh, last year. Avery Bradley, we don't know. Casey Peace, I don't know. Definitely Marquise Morris. I don't trust the Morris twins at all. Marquise or, shoot, I forgot his name. I forgot the guy's name. The one who played for the Wizards. I'm telling you, man, because, you know, they're twins. The Marquise Morris and, I don't know, Marcus and Marquise Morris. One of those guys who were playing for the Wizards back when they had John Wall, Bradley Peel, and they were playing the Celtics to move on a couple of years ago. And I was just sitting there saying, God damn, watching that series, just saying, thinking to myself, God damn, man. I think it was Morris makes so many boneheaded, what the fuck are you doing type of decisions. It's like, I mean, you're tough, you're this, you're that, fine. But sometimes she can make just the dumbest decisions out on the basketball court. So I don't know who the Lakers are going to turn to if, if AD and LeBron need some help. You would have to think that they're going to, especially in the Western Conference Finals, whoever they play, whether it be Denver or whether it be the Clippers, they're going to need somebody to step up. So, yeah, man, I like it. I like what I'm seeing right now from the Los Angeles Lakers. Great victory over great victories over Milwaukee and L.A., the Clippers. But as far as now crowning them 
as the cream of the crop, the fruit of the loom in terms of the best team in the NBA, I wouldn't go that far just yet. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. LeBron James, as I mentioned before, LeBron James had an absolutely fabulous weekend for the Los Angeles Lakers against the Milwaukee Bucks and his heated, hated rival, Giannis and Dinakupo, and then came back and beat the, the, beat the Los Angeles Clippers playing against his nemesis, Kawhi Leonard. So moving forward now, <clears throat> when we speak about this, LeBron Everybody's going to be talking best player in the league. I know for a while it's been Giannis and Luka was in there for a while. And James Harden had a little stretch there where maybe they were talking about him. And Jason Tatum had an absolutely fabulous month of February. But when everything is all said and done, moving moving toward the home stretch, the two-way race for the MVP is going to be Giannis and Dennis Chupo with the Milwaukee Bucks, who right now is injured as the Milwaukee Bucks are going to lose another game, the third in a row to the Denver Nuggets. So it comes down between Giannis and it comes down between him and LeBron James. So, so far this month, four games in which the Lakers have won all, in which they played the Bucks and the Clippers in Philadelphia and New Orleans going up against Zion, another guy looking to take a bite out of the King. LeBron is averaging 30 points, 11 rebounds, eight and a half, re- uh, 11 assists and eight and a half rebounds per game. And this season he's averaging 26 points, 11 assists, 8 rebounds, and playing 35 minutes a night. And when you're speaking about LeBron at 35 years old, his 17th year, first time he's actually playing the point guard position, not point forward, not point basketball player, but actually having point guard duties more times than not, then you're speaking about, wow, this is something that's really remarkable. Only five players have ever averaged 25 points and 10 assists over three over a full season, and three of those guys, Russell Westbrook, James Harden, and of course the big O, Oscar Robertson, won the MVP at least once. So I, I really think, man, when I think about LeBron, I don't know about you, but I just think that for the last seven or eight years that we've taken LeBron James for granted, and we haven't ignored him, but I just think that we've taken his greatness for, for granted. Do you realize that the last time LeBron won the MVP award was in the 2012-2013 season, that's what's going on now, seven years? Since then, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry twice, Russell Westbrook, James Harden, Giannis, they've all won the league MVP. LeBron has four. He's tied with Will, with three, uh, with four. That ties him, ties him for third all-time. Now, if he wins another, that would tie him with Michael Jordan and Bill Russell. But it's just like, damn, I just think that, and look, I think that we can go back and take a look and it's almost like the Michael Jordan syndrome where he lost it to Charles Barkley one year and he lost another one to Carl Malone. And there was some talk in the 1991-92 season that Clyde Drexler and MJ were kind of neck and neck in terms of who's the best shooting guard or who's the best player in the league until Jordan shut that down with a fabulous performance in the finals against Portland where he ate Drexler's lunch, especially in uh, games one and two. But... Man, for the most part, I just think it's just a matter of, look, LeBron, 
greatness is there. And of course, folks who vote just kind of get bored. And the bar is set higher and higher and higher. So even though, look, Kevin Durant deserved to win. When you average a triple-double like Russell Westbrook did and did what he did in terms of his importance to winning to the Oklahoma City Thunder the year that Kevin Durant bolted that franchise and went to play for the Golden State Warriors and how the record was so different when Westbrook didn't average a triple-double from when he did average a triple-double, you would have to give him the MVP. Same thing with James Harden. Same thing with Giannis last season. But it's a situation where, yeah, those players might have been those players might have had better seasons, but the best player was still LeBron James. You have to remember now, LeBron did, during some of these t- seasons, kind of pace himself. There was a situation where he was in Cleveland, I think the first time that he came back, or no, the second time that he came back with David Blatt with the head coach, that basically he decided that he wasn't going to play any defense. There was a situation the first time when he came back to Cleveland that he decided to take 15 to 17 games off and go rest himself down in Miami. There were some situations that during the year, LeBron James was just kind of coasting. And because of that, he did not deserve to win the MVP when you had guys like Steph Curry and Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook and James Harden grinding every single game. So it might have come down to, yeah, sure, LeBron might be the best player in the league, but on a consistent basis because of wear and tear, because of just pacing himself, he's not playing like one. He's not having the type of year that Steph Curry had or that Giannis had. So I understand what everybody's talking about. Well, you know, everybody knows that LeBron James is the best player in the league, just like we knew that Michael Jordan was the best player in the league, just like we knew that at a time Shaquille O'Neal was the best player in the league, just like we knew that Kobe Bryant was the best player in the league, that if you equate the year that Kobe Bryant was the best player in the league and then take a look at his MVP award, sure, Kobe Bryant, if we're speaking about who's the best player in the game as we speak, sure, Kobe Bryant should have won more than one MVP. When we're talking about the absolute dominance of Shaquille O'Neal and realize that he only won one MVP, sure, if we're speaking about dominance, if we're speaking about who's the most unguardable, most unstoppable, most dominant force during that time, that yes, based on that, Shaquille O'Neal should have won more MVPs. Same thing with Michael Jordan. Same thing with all of these great players. But it's just a matter of the narrative of who is having the better year. And it also falls into what that player, who is the best player in the league, what's he doing? What is he doing for his team from game one to game 82? And when you were LeBron and a couple of seasons that you were deciding that you that you were going to take games off or you were going to take possessions off or you weren't going to play defense for a period of not just a quarter or a two, but for weeks, and you had these other guys grinding, I could see where those guys won the MVP. There was no like type of discussion. There was no like type of outrage. There was like no, like I can't believe it, highway robbery when Giannis or Steph or KD or James Harden or Russell Westbrook won their MVPs. Now, people got all upset a couple of years when Steve Nash won his MVP. I think one year he beat, beat Shaq, and Shaq was like, are you fucking kidding me? I think one year that uh, Steve Nash beat uh, Kobe, and everybody was like, really? Steve Nash over Kobe? Really? Seriously? Are you serious? But, you know, I don't uh, put too much stock in that. I still think that it's an open race, but I think as of right now, based on the entire body of work, that Giannis Adenokupo is the MVP of the league. I think that because of his passing skills, because of his ability to shoot, 
much improved jump shot over the years. I think LeBron James, if I was going into a playoff series this season, I would think I would choose LeBron James over Giannis. But I think if you're taking a look at a guy who's averaging 30 points a game on 54% shooting, 14 rebounds, and 6 assists per game in only 29, 30 minutes, I think that with Giannis also having the Bucks leading the Bucks to the best record in the NBA so far, I think Giannis has to be the MVP, especially now, again, you saw them give up 141 points to the uh, Phoenix Suns uh, this weekend, and now they're losing again to the Denver Nuggets. Yeah, you think the uh, values, the definition of most valuable, you don't think um, Giannis is valuable to the Milwaukee Bucks? Just take a look at what they've been doing. They look pretty embarrassed, embarrassing when they play the Indiana Pacer, Pacers uh, before the All-Star break, so... I'm not ready to sit there and talk about, now. no question about it, that it's time for LeBron to win the MVP and it's a joke and it's a sideshow if he doesn't win it. I think that so far, especially when you take a look at the sidekick that each one of those is riding with, LeBron is riding with AD, Giannis is riding with Chris Middleton. Who does the advantage go to? I think so. So, yeah, as of right now, as it stands right now, March 10th, 2020, my MVP in the NBA is still riding with the man named Giannis Adenakupo. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Let me end with a little basketball news, and then I want to go to UFC 248. Brooklyn will be looking, Brooklyn, Brooklyn Nets will be looking for a new head coach in the next few months. Next, uh, Nets head coach Kenny Atkinson resigned from the job last week after three full seasons. The official statement from general manager Sean Marks was that both sides mutually agreed to part ways, which means... They mutually agreed to part ways. So what the fuck happened? Well, according to Yahoo Sports' Vincent Goodwill, Atkinson struggled to mess with the team's two biggest offseason acquisitions, Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. What? Struggled to mess with the, with Kyrie Irving? A coach having problems with Kyrie Irving? Unheard of. I don't believe that. Are you sure? According to Ian Bagley, they didn't specifically name Irving, but reported some Nets players felt that Atkinson had lost a portion of the locker room recently, and that also Goodwill sources said that the coach wasn't fond of coaching Durant and Irving based on what he saw this season, and would rather something happen now than at the end of the season. I guess if you listen to Brian Windhorse and Adrian Wojnarowski and Chris Broussard and anybody with an ear toward the ground, of the NBA that this was a fatal complete in terms of once the season was over, regardless if they wanted, even if they won a championship or not, that Sean Marks was going to let Kenny Atkinson go. So 
Atkinson was like, fuck it, man. Why wait till the end of the season? Let's get this shit done right now. So, according to Goodwill also, that Irving prefers L.A. Clippers assistant head coach Tyron Lue, who was his coach when he coached the Cleveland Cavaliers. And, of course, if you remember, and I'm quite sure you don't, so let me refresh your memory, when Irving was traded to the Boston Celtics, I remember one of his quotes his first year during the honeymoon period with the Celtics was is that it was so refreshing and so wonderful that he could kind of connect with a coach like Brad Stevens on a higher basketball intelligent level. So that was kind of his shot at Tyron Lue talking about your basketball IQ and acumen is not as strong as the wonderful and great and fabulous and super genius wonderkin Brad Stevens. So now fast forward a few years later, Kyrie Irving got tired of Brad Stevens, and now he went to the Brooklyn Nets, and they got tired of Kenny Atkinson, and now he wants the guy who we slammed and wanted to leave for the first place, which was Tyron Lue. Welcome to the world of Kyrie Irving. So, again, the question has to be asked, how much of a role did Irving and play, Irving and Durant play in this? And because everybody says, hey, look, man, you know what? <laughs> the NBA... They're in the position to where I'm quite sure that those guys, I'm not saying that they had the final say, but I'm quite sure they kind of knew what was going on. And I'm quite sure if Durant and Kyrie wanted Atkinson to stay, that they would go to management and say, hey, what are y'all doing, man? We like this guy. I mean, that's, that's the reason why Randy Whitman kept, kept his job with the Washington Wizards for as long as he did, because John Wall would always, always vouch for him when Grunfeld wanted to fire him. So if, Atkinson had the support of KD and Kyrie, I'm quite sure, 100% quite sure, and 99.5% sure, because nothing's 100, right, except death and taxes, that Atkinson would still be the coach of this team. So I think going forward, the team that the Nets have now, when you include Kyrie and DeAndre Jordan and KD with the expectations of moving forward, which is competing for championships, I just don't think Kenny Atkinson was the guy to lead them there. I don't know if this is true, but when he was hired by Sean Marks, I mean, this was a guy who was supposed to be a guy who could rebuild, that he could build up, that he could take players that were not as talented and mold them into a group, mold them into a unit that could compete. So he had them on a, a regimen. He had them on a routine. He had them uh, all work together for a common goal in terms of getting better, in terms of competing and all of these type of things, the philosophy that was stoked that was baked that was you know put into everything that the Brooklyn Nets did now all of a sudden you get guys like Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant DeAndre Jordan I mean Kyrie has won an NBA championship one of the best players in the league when he's healthy motivated and focused you have a guy like Kevin Durant who's going to go now and one of the top 10 players who's ever played this game still motoring still in this prime despite the fact that he suffered that Achilles tendon but Basically, everybody's jumping for joy and hope and optimism raises supreme because um, the acquisition of these two guys for free agency. So it's only natural for Kyrie and KD to kind of take a look at the things that Joe Harris and Spencer Dimwitty and all these other guys are doing to say, well, we're, we're not doing that shit. <laughs> we, got our, we got our own routine, Kenny. I mean, how many championships have you won? I mean, how many MVPs have you won? We, how many all-star games and all-star teams have you been on? So, you know, don't don't be sitting up there talking about you need to do this at a certain time and you need to work out with our guys and you need to do our routine. No, I got my own routine and I'm doing my own thing. That might sound selfish, but that's the champion's prerogative. When you have when you have the stature 
of someone like uh, Kevin Durant or a Kawhi Leonard or a LeBron James or a Giannis Adenikupo or a James Harden or at the time when he was in Oklahoma City or Russell Westbrook. When you have that much sway, when you have that much control, when you have that much importance to a franchise, then the coach and the player, that franchise player, are going to have to be able to work together. So, and I'm not saying, I don't have any resources. I don't know if Kenny Atkinson said, no, fuck you, Kyrie, we're going to do it my way or hit, the, or, or, or hit the highway. If he did, he would have been gone a long, long time ago. But I don't know. I don't know. It was a fit that maybe Atkinson just wasn't used to. I mean, the only, only coaches who might possibly get away with doing some of the things that Atkinson was asking these guys to do and maybe put it upon these guys as far as Kyrie and KD coming in. The only coach who would have that type of gravitas, the only coaches who would have that type of respect would be Greg Popovich, Rick Carlisle, and maybe Doc Rivers. And that's about it. Everybody else you're just going to have to work with. Everybody else is like, you know, hey, that's the way it goes, and we're going to have to see what we can do to coexist peacefully and have mutual respect for each other and this, that, and the other. But no, man, I'm sorry. I'm not Joe Harris, and I'm not uh, I'm, I'm not Paris Levert. When you say jump, I don't say how high. I'm too accomplished, I'm too great, and I'm too important to the franchise for you to be for you to be having that type of control over me. So I can understand where Kyrie and KD and the other guys were like, nah, man, this shit ain't going to work. And for Atkinson, as I mentioned before, as a team like the Nets who are looking to compete for championships in the next couple of years, he, management didn't feel that he fit the role. He fit into that role. I mean, he was brought in to be the guy sitting as Brett Brown was with Philadelphia, Scott Brooks when he was with Oklahoma City, David Blatt, when he was first hired by Cleveland before LeBron James decided that he was going to leave Cleveland and or sorry, leave Miami and go to Cleveland. Stan Van Gundy, remember when he was the coach at Miami and they got themselves uh, Gary Payton. I think they, they brought in Gary Payton and Jason Williams and a couple and Alonzo Mourning. And they had all this talent. And Pat Riley said, you know what, Stan, you're a great builder. You're a great team builder. You're a pretty good coach, but I'm the guy that can kind of put us over the hump. So see you later. And the guy that was holding up the championship trophy at the end of the season wasn't Stan Van Gundy. It was Pat Riley. So Stan Van Gundy at that time was that type of coach. Taylor Jenkins, another coach at Memphis. His job right now is to mold such players as John Morant and Jaron Jackson Jr. Now there's going to come a time, maybe three or four years down the road, when the expectations are going to change. Maybe they go out and get themselves a free agent that can help them compete for championships or Morant and <clears throat> Jaron Jackson Jr. are at that level to where they're going to be competing for conference championships and NBA championships in four or five years that maybe the management will say, okay, well, Tyler Jenkins did his job. Now let's go out and hire ourselves an established head coach to get them over the hump to take it to the next level. Lloyd Price, the same thing in Atlanta. He's in charge. I mean, when you have Cam Reddish and you have, um, uh, um, oh my goodness, you have Cam Reddish, you have Trey Young, you have uh, John Collins, you have all of these guys that the Hawks are trying to mold and build. We don't know if Lloyd Price is that coach that can also be, not only be the builder, but take everything that he's bought or built and take them to a championship. We found out that Eric Spolstra was that guy. But we don't know if Brett Brown or Taylor Jenkins or Lord Price, or really Kenny Atkinson, is that guy. So I think that's one of the reasons in the Nets organization thought that he wasn't. And so 
Kenny Atkinson is no longer the coach. And not only did the Nets organization didn't think that he could be the guy that could be the coach to have them win a championship, apparently neither did Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving. And you don't have to say, get him out of here. I want him fired. You can be very passive-aggressive and still get your point across. LeBron James has done that for, I don't know, 17 years. And he's not going to tell anybody. He's not going to say, I'm not going to tell you. That's your decision. LeBron is always like, look, it's not my decision to hire coaches and fire coaches. But it is my decision to where when my contract is done, I can assess the situation and go where I want to go. So, uh, you know, you just, my, my silence speaks volumes. Let's put it that way. So when Kyrie and KD did not come out either publicly or privately and say, hey, you know, we, we no, 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 whatever you think about Kenny Atkinson's, I want to play for this man, don't do it. That they did not do. So in essence, what they were saying was, if you fire him, you fire him. If you don't, well, you know, I got three years left on my contract. So <clears throat> we'll go on from there. So yeah, moving on, moving on, moving on, moving on on Wendell's World in Sports, the podcast. Wendell Wallace is your host. That's me. Very glad that uh, I could be with you. Thank you very much for listening. As we head toward the end of this two-hour podcast with UFC 248, the UFC middleweight championship fight. Boring. Israel Adesanya won a unanimous decision over <clears throat> Yoel Romero, 48-47, 48-47, 49-46. My main man, Kevin Ioli of Yahoo Sports, had it 48-47 for Adesanya. Interesting fight, to say the least. <laughs> it was kind of reminded me of, uh, um, I don't know, there's a couple of times where Anderson Silva was fighting. He fought Damian Maya, Damian Maya, and he fought somebody else who I forgot. I think it was Abu Dhabi or something like that, where you were watching this fight and you were just thinking, thinking to yourself, what the fuck is going on? What in the hell is going on? Well, the same thing happened in this fight. Ring, uh, round one, Romero went out to the center of the ring, had his guard up, and he just stood there. And he stood there. And he stood there. And Adesanya was bouncing. He was bouncing. He was bouncing. He wasn't throwing a jab. He wasn't throwing punches. He wasn't throwing kicks. He wouldn't look for takedowns. And Romero was just standing there with his guard up. Standing there. Standing there. Standing there. 30 seconds. 45 seconds. One minute. Minute and a half. Two minutes. Would y'all come on and do something? And that and that's when the crowd started booing, and that's when <clears throat> it took a turn. I don't know what at first it was like, okay. I was I was willing to write off the first round to say, okay, I know what Romero is doing. The guy is 42 years old, he's got muscles on top of muscles. He's been a guy who's known to gas after a couple of rounds. We're going five rounds in this fight. He's fighting for the middleweight championship of the world. Probably the last time he's going to be able to compete for a championship at the middleweight. So he's giving it his best shot. He's going to do everything that he needs to do. He is planning for this fight to go five rounds. Now, I know he lasted well, and I know that he fought well in his championship fights against Robert Whitaker, even though he came in overweight for each one. But I thought it was, okay, He's just going to sit there, and what he's doing is just conserving energy. He's just going to, if, if Alessandro wants to sit there and bounce and bounce and bounce and not do anything, Romero, I, I don't I don't blame him. It's like, cool, because I'm, I'm saving my gas tank. I'm not going to go ahead and make any type of ridiculous 
Russians or anything like that. I'm not going to go wild or anything like that, especially against a striker like Adesanya, who's so great as a counterpuncher. Yeah, I'm not going to sit there and be reckless about it. So I'm going to save as much energy as I can. And especially after he won the first round by what? He threw four strikes and Adesanya threw three. That it was like, all right, here we go, boom. But when he started doing it like midway through the second, it was like, all right, man. I mean, there's two minutes, two and a half minutes left to go in a round. Let's now see what we can do something. And Romero never did. And I'm thinking, Adesanya's like, okay, any minute now, he's going to explode on me. Any minute now, any minute now, any minute now. Let me throw a late kick, let me throw a late kick. But any minute now, any minute now, and it never came around. Now, look, I don't blame Adesanya by taking the Tyron Woodley type of approach to the fight. If he's just going to sit there, I can win the fight easily by what I'm doing now. It ain't going to be pretty. It ain't going to be exciting. It ain't going to you know, be like I got my money's worth, and it ain't going to be nearly as what we saw the women's strawweight championship fight be, but fuck it. I'm going to keep my belt. I'm going to win the fight, and I'll live the fight another day. I got Paulo Costa coming up after this, so I don't need to get careless. I don't need to get foolish. I'm winning the fight by what I'm doing. I found a formula. If he's just going to sit there and let me kick him in his legs all day, then fine. I'll just go ahead and do that. And so I don't blame Adesanya at all. I mean, why deviate from something, especially when you're facing a powerhouse like Romero, Joel Romero? Obviously, he was confused or he was a little bit snake bit or he was a little bit apprehensive speaking about Romero to go ahead and do anything by what Adesanya was doing. So it's incumbent upon Romero to make a fight. He can't sit there and not do anything, maybe have a burst or two every two or three minutes for like 10, 15 seconds. And then after the fight, whine and cry about running, running, running. Adesanya wasn't running. He was sitting up there right in front of you doing leg kicks, maybe popping a jab in your face every once in a while. You were the one with the four, George Foreman-type defense who was just standing there. You made no attempt to engage on a consistent basis. You made no effort to bring the fight out of Adesanya. So it's not Adesanya's decision. It's not his it's not his responsibility to try to get you to fight by wanting to fight the way you want to fight. Well, especially when Adesanya is the champ. So he's whining and complaining after the fight. It might have been bitter. It might have been a realization that his opportunity to win a middleweight championship was gone. He'll never get another chance. 42 years old. I mean, the man's a super freak, but I don't know. How long can you be that built? How long can you be that strong? How long can you have that tremendous punching power? Moving up and moving up in age like he is. So I, I, he was speaking on frustration. Maybe he was speaking on frustration from his part, but I didn't get where he was coming from. Where he was talking about, oh, people paid the pay per view, they paid good money to see people fight. Then you should have fought. Then you should have ran after him and fought. You know, you should have ran after him and caught him. If that means that we have to see a track meet of Alessandro running circles around the circles around the octagon while you're chasing him, like Alessandro is the roadrunner and you're the coyote, well then, you know, that's what it's got to be. And then leave it up to the judges. But I, I had no idea what he was whining and crying, crying about. But I will say this. Regardless, it's a bad look for Alessandro. Very bad look for Alessandro. Especially with this guy's up there jabbering, jabbering and flapping his gums, talking about, I'm going to knock him out. I'm going to be the first man to do this, first man to do that. I could understand maybe a little bit. And maybe... I'm giving him too much credit, Adesanya, for being able to take the punches that landed by Romero. Maybe it was a lot harder than I thought, and that was the reason why 
Alessandra had to change his game plan as quickly as he did. But if you're going to sit up there and talk and talk about you're going to do this and you're going to do that, and you want to talk about being great, if you want to talk about being a superstar, if you want to talk about being a global icon, if you want to reach the number and the prestige and the ability to earn money that Conor McGregor has done at the height of his career and still had the ability to, you can't put on a fight like that, Alessandra. I'm sorry. You can't do that. I mean, it's great that you won. It's great that you'll fight another day as a champion. That's that's fantastic. And you know what? You know what? If your next three or four fights are dominant and you beat the shit out of people and you look great doing it, then this fight against Romero will be forgotten. A one night, off night, bad night, whatever it is. You know, full moon night, whatever. If you go ahead and you beat the shit out of uh, 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 Pablo Costa and reign the middleweight title, reign at the middleweight champion for three or four or five defenses and look great doing it, you'll become that global icon. You'll become that superstar. You'll become that guy that'll make buku bucks. You'll become one of the guys who will be the face of the UFC. I don't I don't know. It'll be interesting to see if a black man from Nigeria who resides in New Zealand can be the face of the UFC. I mean, right there, those are some obstacles that maybe he's going to have to overcome to become that global superstar, especially here in America. If he wants to be the guy, as far as being the face of mixed martial arts, uh, he's got the wrong skin tone and he's living in the wrong country when you're going up against Conor McGregor. If you're talking about who can be the most popular fighter or who can be the guy that can bring bring in the most money, draw the most money, bring in the most pay-per-views. If you got a white Irishman with a big mouth like Conor McGregor against a black Nigerian who lives in New Zealand, like Israel Asanya, unfortunately in this country, the winner of that of that debate, the winner of that's going to be Conor McGregor because of the inherent advantages he has based on skin tone and, and other things. But if you want to become the global superstar, Israel Asanya, if you want to be huge on the continent of Africa, if you want to be huge in New Zealand and Australia, if you want to be that guy in Europe and all these other places, be that guy, then you have to put on a better performance than that. Just winning is not enough. And also, based on that performance, don't want to hear it anymore. I was already kind of tired with your going going at John Jones on Twitter, talking about I'm going to do this and you ain't shit. I'm going to beat you up. I'm going to do this. Your belt. Shut the fuck up. If you if that's the best that you can do with someone like Yoel Romero, who can hit hard, no doubt about it. But still, we are talking about a guy at 185. If you're up there and you're hesitant about his power, think about John Jones, who if you fought him, you would be coming in probably at 205. And you were, if you were going to fight John Jones for the light heavyweight championship of the world in the UFC at 205 pounds, and you're probably a natural 185, 185 pounder, you're probably walking around 195, 200. So you're probably going to be coming into the octagon to fight Jones that night at what, around 204, 203 maybe? And John Jones is going to be walking in that octagon at, what, 220? The fight? No, leave, leave him alone. Leave him alone. And especially don't be talking some shit about, yeah, I'm going to fuck you up. I'm going to mess you up. I'm going to do all these type of things in a few years. Hey, get the fuck out of here, man. <laughs> you know, shut the fuck up with that nonsense. Yeah, I'm going to whip your ass. I'm going to do all this stuff. You can't see. You can't do shit. I'm in your head, motherfucker. You can't do shit. I'm going to whip your ass in a couple of years. Oh, okay. <laughs> get out of here. Get out of here, man. No, don't, don't, don't be trying to be Ali and paint John Jones and Sonny Liston or George Foreman. Fool! 
You ain't gonna have no rumble in the jungle in the next 12 months to shut the fuck up. Just leave, leave John Jones alone. Leave that man alone. Especially if that's the best you can do against uh, someone in your own weight class. So don't, don't be up there bumping gums and talking smack to John Jones. Leave that man alone. You know, he's got his own situation. That man is looking to see what he can do about defending his light heavyweight championship and maybe moving up to fight Miocic or anything like that. He's got other things on his mind. He ain't, he ain't thinking about you. Leave that man alone. Israel, Adesanya, great potential, man. Great. He has everything. He's articulate. He's intelligent. He's quick-witted. He's, he, he understands the game, the promotion games. He plays it well. He doesn't have to do anything stupid. He doesn't have to say anything stupid. He doesn't have to say anything racial. He doesn't have to say anything ridiculous. Now, he did make that one comment. Like, I'm going to... He made that one comment I heard where he says, I'm going to bring down Romero like the plane did the Twin Towers or some shit like that, where it's like, all right, that's fucking stupid. But for the most part, he ain't calling people from Brazil... You know, people living in the muds, and he's not going there. He's not being a Colby Covington or something stupid like that. He's not talking about people's religion or anything like that. I've never heard Alessandra get to the point where he's crossing the racial boundaries or ethnic boundaries or gender boundaries. And he's not going. He's not saying bad things about people's kids or their parents or their wives or anything like that. So he's not his his trash talk is not dipping into anything personal. So. Alessandra has the skill, he has the flair, he has the look, he has everything that needs to be, that you need to be to be a global superstar. Fuck what this country is all about in terms of who's deciding is the biggest person in sports. Because guess what? In the world of sports, in this country, we might say it's LeBron James or Tom Brady. No, 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 no. Global superstar, it's Ronaldo and it's Lionel Messi. So... Don't get it twisted. You can be big. You don't have to be the bee's knees. You don't have to be the number one guy in the United States to be number one global. You can be you can be popular in other countries. Other countries count too. Don't let the bullshit of this don't let the bullshit of the propaganda of this country for those who are listening to this podcast outside of the United States kind of warp what your views are in terms of a athlete being popular, like if he's not popular or known in the United States, obviously, then he's like, no, 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 no. You've got many other countries, many other continents to conquer to where you can make a boatload of money, you can be an icon, you can be a global superstar and still walk down the streets of northwest Las Vegas and not be bothered. So, cool, cool, cool for Israel Adesanya. I'll tell you what, man. Wendell's World of Sports, Wendell Wallace, host of the podcast. Let's end this with this, shall we? Woman's Strawweight Championship. My girl, Joanna Jemjacek. Love that girl. Did you see that dress she was wearing when she came up for the uh, weigh-in? Them legs that she was uh, working with with them high heels? There you go, Joanna. I'm quite your uh, boyfriend or fiancé saying, you're, you're, you're. Maybe not after that fight because, woo, that fight between her and Zhang Weili, that was something else, man. Zhang won that split decision, 48-47. 47-48, 48-47. That was the greatest championship fight I've seen in UFC history. And I'm not just talking about females. I'm talking about just period. That was the greatest championship fight in UFC history. Now, I don't know. There's many other organizations out there to where I'm quite sure maybe there's a, maybe there's a promotion over in the Philippines or maybe in China or maybe some other country to where, I don't know, both ladies killed each other simultaneously. That might have gone down at the greatest fight of all time or something like that. But, man, you're talking about the contenders being Jones, 
John Jones versus Alexander Gustafson the first time. Greg Maynard versus Frankie Edgar, both one and two. Robbie Lawler versus Rory McDonald, where they were fighting for the welterweight title. That goes right up there, man. This strawweight fight went right up there. And people are talking about a rematch. Let them girls heal, man. I'm sorry. Let them ladies heal. Both Whaley and Jen Jacek because they beat the living shit out of each other. And I was texting my man Armando and I was talking to him. I was like, man, Whaley fights like a Mexican fighter and Jen Jacek has the chin in the head like a Mexican fighter. I am, I mean, she was, Joanna was just taking shot after shot after shot. Hard shots. And she would step back maybe a little bit and come right back forward. Man, I'm quite sure she must have some, she, her great, great, great grandmother, grandfather, whatever, must be Mexican because um, that head of hers, man, that, 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 she must have a thick skull to be taking a pounding that uh, she was taking. And again, the halfway lead, first time, five-round fight, looked like she was running out of gas in the third round. And Joanna, again, I mean, she was putting combinations together. She was fighting beautifully, both combinations with the, Hands and the feet. I mean, it looked like it was her fight to win. It looked like the momentum. And it almost looked like she, in maybe the rounds four or five, could go for the knockout, getting to the point where Wei Lee was going to get exhausted or become fatigued enough to where she would leave herself open to get hit cleanly enough with a combination to where that she could go down or at least be in trouble enough where the referee would have to stop it. But give it up for her, man. Wei Li, the one with the beautiful abs, the beautiful shoulders, the beautiful deltoids, big thighs and big thighs and calves. Boy, she came on strong, man. Showed a champion's heart, and uh, she got the victory. She got it done. And you have to feel sorry. I don't know. For Joanna, I think this might signal the end in terms of her being a championship-level fighter because I don't know how you come back from this. I don't know how you even run, run it back. I don't even know if I'm one of these ladies. I don't I don't want to fight each other again. I, if I'm Whaley, I want nothing to do with Jen Jacek. And if I'm Jen Jacek, I want nothing to do with Whaley. Man, let someone else beat her. And then maybe I can fight that person who beat her for the championship. But I want nothing else to do with, uh, with her and the same thing with the other. So an awesome fight. An awesome fight on Saturday night. If you're feeling all right, if you're feeling bright, then all right. I want to thank everybody. I want to thank you very much for listening to the podcast. You can go to Apple One. No, you can, Apple, no, iTunes. 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 I'm still learning this stuff, man. Come on. What are you laughing at me for? I'm learning. Learning. You can go to iTunes or anywhere where you can rate and review. Give me a rate and review. You can either say it sucks, you can either say it's great, I'd rather have you say it's great, or it's pretty good, or the guy's got potential, or whatever. But if you're going to critique, if you're going to give a negative review, no problem. I doesn't hurt my feelings. Please, if you're going to give me a review, if you hate what I'm doing, please just leave out the racial slurs. <laughs> not, dealing, not dealing with the racial slurs, okay? So... You can say I suck. You can say I don't know what I'm talking about. You can say uh, whatever, I ramble too much. You can say the music sucks. You can say all those things. Just leave out the racial slurs and no harm will be taken. We'll not take it seriously. All right? Good. So my name is Wendell Wallace. You have been listening to Wendell's World of Sports. It's a beautiful night. It's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful time to be with someone with the one you love. It's Beautiful time to be with your kids. Beautiful time to be with your husband. Beautiful time to be with your wife. Beautiful time to be living. Beautiful time to be 
doing what you want to do. Beautiful time, beautiful moment in this world that we live in right now to be happy, to be healthy, to be prosperous, to have peace of mind, and to be glad that you're still able to breathe another breath. Music! <laughs>